I was like, I'm going to prepare a disc. And you're like, just put as much slick on it as you can. Welcome to the podcast. This is Clock or Counter. I'm Ryan Young, and with me is James Wiseman. So today we're going to talk about the world's routines, or we're going to do a watch of the world's routines. But before that, we're going to do a little segment called underrated, overrated, or properly rated, where we take some topics that the other person hasn't seen and we'll give a hot take and a response. So do you want to kick us off, James? I'll go first. I'm starting out with a very simple one. How do you, oh, I, I got to do this properly. Underrated, overrated, or properly rated, bringing a new disc to the jam that is already happening. Wait, so imagine is this like... there's some people jamming and you're looking from afar and you're like, I want to join that jam, but I don't know if that disc looks very good. So you bring your own disc to the jam and make them swap out. I think that is underrated because most of the time you have the good intention of that disc there is hurting that jam and I want to improve it. And I don't think that's done enough. So it's underrated. I'm so glad we can start off with the disagreement because I think it is <laughs> overrated. I don't know what it is. There's something just slightly passive aggressive about coming to a GM and being like, I know you all had your own thing going here, but I'm going to come in. It's like the mansplaining of disc management. It's sort of like you guys thought you were having a jam with a good disc, but I actually have a better disc. And there's also something kind of funny about it because you probably haven't felt their disc. Or uh, there's also a variation, right? Which is you go in, you get the disc once and you kind of go, oh, and then you go off to the side and you get another disc and, and you bring it. But here, but here's where I'll agree with you a little bit. So I remember when I was younger and it was a very different era, as people should know, where I was taught that you should only use one exclamation point in your life. Like that's how precious an exclamation point was. Now, of course, now everyone texts with a thousand exclamation points and a million emojis, but that's all, that's Gen Z stuff. I don't understand. So I think once a year, you get to go into a jam and swap out the disc, but that's it. You have to be very judicious about it. It's not something you should make a habit of. You should generally just accept that if the disc is good enough for them, it's good enough for you. And I have had the experience where you join a jam and sometimes the people in the jam will say, hey, this disc isn't very good. If you have another one, bring it. And then, of course, it's okay. But I'm generally kind of against it. Okay. I think the reasoning matters and your intention. So, like, we were just in Milan and everyone was jamming on this dusty field. And I think it was a welcome every time the disc changed out, even for, like, any reason, just because the disc would get so dirty so quickly. And everyone yeah. knew that. And in that context, it wasn't like that disc was bad. It was like that disc has been played with for five minutes. That's definitely why I was on my mind. It was a very dusty field in Milan. There was one jam I entered with Andreas Rivera and Pablo where I got really close to going to get my disc. And I, I think I might have even said something as a joke of like, how can you even look yourself in the mirror and play with this disc? It is so dusty. But... I honestly respect for anyone who has the patience to play with a disc that's super dusty. But, you know, if you're playing somewhere where the field is dusty, sometimes you just say, I can only switch the disc out so many times. You just have to accept loss and move on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. What's your next one? 
No, I think I did the first one, so you do the second one, right? Oh, we're going to alternate? Okay. Yes, we got to alternate. Okay. Underrated, overrated, or properly rated? White Frisbee plastic. Oh, I know we're going to disagree on this one. I love white plastic. As Barack in New York City says, bring me the white one. So cons are obvious. A lot of people don't like playing with a white disc because it's harder to see especially against the sun or in in the dark or wherever. It's just a little bit harder to see. But there's a lot of variance in the quality of sky stylers. And that's a variance that's year to year. Some years have better plastic than other years. But there's also variance among the colors. And that color variance has been pretty consistent. So I think the general ranking of disc in terms of how fast they are is white, yellow, orange, blue. So let me pause. Do you agree with me there? In terms of speed of the disc, you would rank them white, yellow, orange, blue. I would. Be clear, like fast speed, that just means, and our perception, which I think is accurate because freestylers tend to agree about it, if we are delaying the disc or doing rim work, the disc will spin a little bit longer white versus orange because it's faster for anyone who doesn't know that lingo. With that said, most freestylers still prefer the yellow disc because even though it's a little bit slower than the white, it's easier to see. And I get that. I love yellow disc, but I'm amazed at the just absolute discrimination against white disc. Like <laughs> there's the number of people who won't even look at a white disc. If I show you a white disc, you turn away like a vampire to garlic. You can't stand it. And the number one comment I got after my open pairs round this year, which tells you something about how well the round went, was, oh my God, how did you all play to a white disc? And I will say that that was Graf's suggestion. And I was surprised that he was willing to play with a white disc. But I am generally always happy to play with a white one. Yeah, you want to play with a slab of granite. <laughs> it is so heavy and so hard <laughs> that when I'm brushing it, I think my hand like recoils mid brush every time. It's just like okay, wait, my hand will be red really, like a cartoon at the end of the jam. This is really great because this is for all my, well, I don't know what the right word is, like over detailed analysis of every aspect of freestyle that doesn't really phase me that I don't think about is the weight of the disc. But I know a lot of people care a lot about it. And as an example from this year in Milan, in Milan worlds in co-op, I was playing with you and Pavel and we had a three disc routine and especially with the conditions of the whole weekend with how people were keeping their disc clean. We had a whole musical chairs of what discs we were going to use in the competition in which disc we're going to be used in which roles. Like, is this our main disc? Is this the secondary disc? And so at some point we had two discs that we set aside and then we had two more identical discs, two yellow 2019 or 2018 FPA discs. And we had to decide which of these two discs do we use. Now, you should already be at home laughing that this amount of effort went into picking the two di one of the two discs we'd use for a four-minute routine and this disc got used for like a total of 25 seconds. But So when I was doing my overly absurd analysis, I was actually throwing them up and testing each one as a delay in the rim, seeing how they felt. They felt about the same to me. I didn't think much about it. So I said, whatever one of these is fine. So I go up to you and I hand you the two discs. I'm like, which one do you prefer? 
And I expected you to do what I did and throw them up to lay them, try them in the room. Instead, you held both of them in your hands like Yoda meditating and you closed your eyes and you kind of felt them in your hands and then you handed one to me. And I, I almost thought you were kidding. And it was like, well, what, what, why this one? And you said something like, oh, it's lighter. And I was like, okay, whatever. So then I go to Pavel and I hand him the two discs and he did not see what you did. And I thought he, like me, would take the disc, do a delay, try a rim. And I handed him the disc. And he took both discs in his hands, held them up like Yoda meditating, closed his eyes, felt them a little bit, and handed me the exact same disc. And I was like, why this one? And he said it was lighter. And I'm telling you, it can't be but a gram or two different between the two discs. Like I cannot perceive the difference between them. But you both were so firm in your belief that this disc was lighter, A, and B, therefore better, which just amused me to no end. But I find it awesome that you and Pavel can both tell a gram difference in two discs apart. I mean, I've been playing a long time. <laughs> I'm I surprised mean, you... Clearly, you, pr you probably played like two years longer than me. Clearly, in two years, I'll have the incredible ability to wave the disc in my hands like that. But at the moment, I don't think I can accurately do it. We, we might have to have yeah. a whole podcast where we just blind test your ability to do this. Next time, we're in the same place. We're going to have to actually see if you can tell the difference between the discs. I am so curious. Is it going to be like wine testing where I can't tell the difference between the $200 bottle, $200 bottle and the $15 bottle of wine? I'm more nervous that you're like, like, this is 2.7 grams less and it's going to be dead on. <laughs> we'll like, see. You're going to hand me a B disc and like some blue disc and I'll be like... They're the same. I I know I, I would be more <laughs> impressed if you could hold the disc blindfold and be like, this one's blue and this one's orange. <laughs> like that, I mean, that would be like a party trick. Like we, that would be pretty cool. We might have to do, that, this okay. should be part of Worlds where we just have a separate side competition where people have to go up and test their ability to, to weigh discs. But anyways, we have a lot to cover today. So I'm going to move us on okay. to the next one. Now I have three here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do them one at a time. But these ones are probably all going to merit their own podcast episodes because they're very big subjects. But I wanted to give people a, a, a flavor of the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about. So underrated, overrated, or properly rated, the battle format. It's underrated. I think it's underutilized. Like not a single person competition. And I think... Of all like the ones we've tried, it is the best person competition. And, and just to be clear, so in the battle format, the way it's usually worked is that you do 1v1, three rounds each battle. Player A doesn't move, player B doesn't move, it's judged. And then whoever wins that goes second, right? Or first, sorry, like, goes first like, if you like, win that. Independent of those details, it's just like the 1v1. Well, so the valuable. reason I'm bringing it up is because I want to ask okay. you about a different format too. But the idea is that you like each person doesn't move, it's judged. Each person doesn't move, it's judged. Whoever wins two of the battles or whatever, whoever wins the one-on-one -on -one move matchup wins the battle or wins the round, whatever it is. Okay. But there's another format that I believe is called, is it, I always mix up Turbo Shred and Super Hain, but whatever. There's another format where you might have five freestylers and they each have three attempts at as hard a move as possible and whoever has the hardest move wins. That's like another individual format. So you prefer the battle format over what is it? Super pro or turbo shred? I don't know either. Let's go with turbo shred. 
Turbo Shred. So you prefer Battle over Turbo Shred. Exactly. Because what is the most exciting part of the Turbo Shred? It's when the last person goes and you know all the stakes. But that happens every time in battle. That's all mm -hmm. it is. And I almost should have made the question broader, but I'll, I'll even ask it. Properly underrated, overrated, or properly rated individual competition formats? I think it's underrated just because we haven't explored it as much as all the other formats. Yeah, so I get that. I mean, I struggle with it. I mean, because normally I feel like I'm not a very conservative freestyler in the sense that I tend to like new things and I want to try new formats and experiment. But for some reason, I've never really caught the individual format bug. And maybe that's because I'm not very good at it. Like, I don't feel like it, like, it weirdly doesn't suit my game very well. And I, I guess that's an easy excuse to say when you don't do well, it's something to be like, wow, well, it doesn't fit my game. But something about it never really sat right with me. And I, and I would like to say something like, well, it's not freestyle is. Freestyle is about cooperation, but I don't think that's true. I mean, a lot of freestyle is doing individual moves and trying to do the hottest moves you can. So there's nothing really wrong with it. But I definitely am a little bit hesitant about it going that direction. Uh, I'm worried I'm sounding like an old hippy-dippy freestyler who's like, it's all about I see. Flow. I don't think it even has to involve, it can be an individual competition, but it can have more than one people or more than one person. It's like, who can jam the best with Jake? That's still an individual competition, but yeah. there's two there's multiple people involved. Yeah, so we talked a lot about that. We should have a whole episode exploring individual competition formats. I think there's a lot there, but there's something about the battle. And maybe my like one sentence summary of my views on it is, I really like individual competition formats for the show. I really don't like them as something to compete in or as a measure of someone's freestyle skill, if that makes sense. Okay. And to be clear, it it's really hard to win an individual format. You have to be one of the best players for sure. But I think that a lot of the best players feel like I do, where they don't feel well suited to succeed in a battle format. And maybe part of it is because anyone can be really good for seven seconds. It's like you can kind of game that system, right? Like I could be, I could take a time machine and go back six or seven years ago before I was really good at freestyle and I could build five incredible battle moves and have a shot at beating a lot of better players. But what does that mean? What does it mean if you can kind of smoke and mirrors your way through a individual competition. I mean, you can also smoke and mirror through a routine, whatever we'll get, we'll, we'll make that a whole other podcast. <laughs> okay. So uh, right. let's move on, but I'm going to warn you in okay. advance. My next one is somewhat related. All right. Next one. It's just, or, okay. I'm up underrated, overrated, or properly rated being tall. Oh man, we're, we're off to a hot start because we're going to disagree. We've disagreed a lot so far. So I know that you believe being tall is a huge advantage as a freestyler. And I agree with you to a large extent. However, there is a big caveat, which is that I think it is much more difficult to do freestyle with proper form, with a long body. And I think certain things become very difficult, like rolls. And it's pretty simple why 
especially the latter, like rolls. If your arms are four feet long, you only have to successfully maintain a roll for four feet. If your arms are seven feet long, it's a lot of the roll that long. I mean, most people can't get a roll with full contact across their arms anyways. If you double the length of their arms, it's a lot harder to do that. It's just, it's all about variance, right? You introduce more opportunities for variance in a long roll. And I've kind of thought like if you had a roll competition, of course, it's always going to be the number of rolls you do. But I almost think a better format would be how long can you consecutively roll? And like, that's <laughs> like, that's truly this, the same task. Cause first of all, I can't roll. And this is not a diss if you have short arms, right? But like, I can never roll a hundred times like Pablo can. That's incredible. But if I did roll a hundred times, I think it would take me twice as long as it took Pablo to roll because it just takes so much longer for the disc to travel across my arms. And again, I cannot do it. I'm not that skilled. I'm not as skilled at Pavel at consecutive rolls for sure. Like all respect to Pavel. But I do think that there's something to the fact of how long it takes you to do that. And then on the form thing, I know we disagree a lot about this and I'm not sure I'm right. Like this is, this is a general disclaimer for the whole podcast. I do not know if I'm right about anything, even in freestyle, even about things I probably should know about. But this is especially high on my I could be wrong list. I just think that the really tall players, it takes them a lot longer to find their form if they do at all. I wonder if that's true. No, I'm going to disagree because in dance, being tall is a huge advantage. Like being tall is enough to justify your form. Like when you're short, you have to be fast and precise and you have to have clean lines and all this all dancer. So it's like, I think it's a huge advantage on form. Well, think about it. So like in basketball, there's definitely this idea that it's a lot harder to be a good shooter if you're tall. And some of that is beyond my ability to explain. That's geometry with the basket. Yeah, like there's definitely a geometry aspect of that, of like where your arms are in relation to the basket and like the kind of like parabola it makes. True, true, true. But there's this other thing of like the body mechanics become much more complicated and difficult to maintain when you're that tall. And for instance, like one thing that has happened, and I'm not a basketball expert, so someone who knows more can correct me, but I believe like Giannis may be the best basketball player in the world right now. When he entered the league, he was a certain height, like six six or six eight, and he was a pretty decent free throw shooter, for instance, and had pretty good form. And then he had a big growth spurt and was like seven one or seven two, and his mechanics for free throw shooting fell apart. And you would think that like growing it might make it harder for him to shoot because of the geometry, but you would think his mechanics would stay the same, but I think he had trouble maintaining them. Or they talk about like hand size. If your hands get too big, it becomes really hard to have like a fluid basketball shot. And I think there's something like that in freestyle, but freestyle is way too much in its infancy for us to have the kind of like analysis that we would need to know if that's true. Okay. Here's the thing. There's like, you can name roles as the disadvantage. It's like, would you rather be tall or short in real life? Like if you're tall, everyone says it's hard to like sit in the airplane, but for like the other like 10,000 things in life, it's better. Yeah, so like, that's so yeah, fair. I mean, I totally agree. I, if you were like, you have to be short or tall, what would you rather be? I would say, make me what I am now. I don't want to be any shorter than I am now. Cause I do think it helps me in freestyle. Like here's another way to put it. It's like, your journey is longer, but the end result is better. 
Like it's a little bit harder to figure everything out, but once you do, you're in a better position. But I also think there's a point where you go too far. Like I think it'd be really hard to be a seven foot five freestyler. So even though I prefer to, I don't want to be any taller than I am now. And that's probably an obvious bias of like, well, like everyone, it's like, this is what I am now. This is what I'm used to. This is what I would want to be. But I do genuinely think, I genuinely think I would not want to be taller than I am now because I think it would make freestyling harder. Or we'll have to ask whatever. Jake. I still think I would get better eventually, <laughs> but I'm like, I think six feet, six one is pretty good. But like one of my new freestylers, Will, he's probably like 5'10", and he looks like he has the perfect freestyle dimensions. And I kind of think like, oh, maybe I could shave an inch or two off. Okay, okay, so now it's my turn, right? Yep. Similar theme, I know. Underrated, overrated, or properly rated routine-based competition formats. Overrated. So I think just in general, or yeah, freestyle is not good at routines because the disc is so unpredictable about doing the perfect thing over and over again. Like that's routine. That's what it means. And that's not what the disc, a contradiction there that we're trying to make work. And if there was something that like, I don't know, like emphasized how good we were at overcoming like the unpredictability of the disc, like that would be a better showcase of our skill instead of being like, look at all these imperfections that happened during her routine. So I actually kind of agree with you here. And I think my opinion on this has evolved over time. And I think you were the first person who made me question the status quo. We have a routine based competition. system. the only system I really knew, certainly for the first half decade of my freestyle career. And it's only been recently that new kinds of formats have been introduced, but I'll echo that and put it a different spin on it, which is that nothing about routines is natural to freestyle, meaning the way so like if you think about how any competition format springs up, it's you have a game or whatever that people play and you're like, we like doing this. Let's make a competition out of this. And usually you take, if it's a true zero sum sport, it's very easy. Let's play this game we do in a competition. But when it's something like freestyle or surfing or dance, it's more of a question of how do we convert this thing that we do into some kind of meaningful competition format. And the problem with routines is that they're so far removed from freestyle in its natural environment. We don't do pre-choreographed moves when we jam with each other. And when we play together, we like there's just nothing about a routine that's like how we play together. We don't use multiple discs. That's something we talk about at Worlds this year. So many routines now have multiple discs. That's really cool. But if you joined my jam and you just started throwing a second or third disc around, I'd be like, what are you doing? This is not like what we play at all. <laughs> And you picked up on another thing that I think probably warrants its own episode, which is that there's this long debate conversation, whatever you want to call it in our sport. And I use that term lightly about, is this a sport or is this an art? And the obvious answer is it's both. And there's sport like elements and there are art like elements and routines emphasize the art like element, which I think is great. But the problem, as you mentioned, is that we kind of struggle as an art because it's so hard to do what we do perfectly. And most art demands a certain degree of perfection. And I think when people watch our sport with no context, 
and I keep using the word sport, which probably shows my leaning a little bit. But when people watch the freestyle world championship and they hear the music and they see the choreography, it puts them in art mindset. And then they see the drops and the mistakes and they think, oh, these people are really bad at this. And I think that art, that art, what's the word? Like putting it in the frame of art gives people a certain expectation, which we cannot meet or exceed. But one thing I wish we could do a better job of, and I don't know necessarily how to do it, is show people that this is a sport. You have to watch it like baseball where there's going to be strikeouts, there's going to be errors, there's going to be all these imperfections that happen. And that's part of this game. It's part of what we do. And you should expect that. So when you watch a freestyle routine, you should be watching to see, can they overcome the different problems that arise? Can they do this as cleanly as possible? And again, I don't know if I'm, I'm not trying to take the, like, this is a sport side of things, but I think we have to keep this sport frame of reference so that people can modulate their expectations when they try to view it as an art which is a very long answer hopefully it made sense what do you think ryan i think so yeah it's all about the audience expectations and yeah you've you like nailed it with when you watch us compete with music and choreography it looks like an art but we're playing some we're not we're not doing art (laughs) we're like fighting the wind Oh, yeah. Well, that'll be a whole nother conversation about (laughs) those circumstances we put ourselves in to try to perform complicated routines at a high level. But that will be for another day. Okay, Ryan. So I think we have two more underrated, overrated or properly rated in Europe. All right. Underrated, overrated or properly rated. Having a healthy amount of slick on the disc. Great question. And you have also converted me to this, it's almost impossible to have too much slick on the disc. And there's going to be a lot of people out there who are recoiling in horror right now because they're so fastidious about keeping the disc amount of slick and keeping the edges really dry so that they can roll. But in my mind, the more slick, the better. It doesn't affect my catching it affected my throwing at the beginning, but that if you're holding the disc as hard as you should be, the slick is basically a non-factor. Maybe way to put it is slick is a limiting factor. So if I, the, I, as, the more slick I have, the more opportunities I have to do what I want to do. All the things that more slick makes worse, I can deal with. I can figure out how to throw it with a lot of slick. I can figure out how to roll it with a lot of slick and I can figure out how to catch it with a lot of slick. So let me maximize my ceiling by putting as much slick on the disc as my partners can stand and I'll figure out how to work around whatever drawbacks there are to having a little bit too much slick. I totally agree. I'm wondering if the moment I learned this was the same moment you also learned had this epiphany. It was at the end of 2018 Slovakia Worlds. It was like we were what? It was that competition was over. And we're doing the wind down jam at the end of the day. And it's Bar Bendek, you and me in the jam. And I was like, I'm going to prepare a disc. And you're like, just put as much slick on it as you can. And I just like emptied my bottle into the disc. And it was like a noticeable layer of gloss on both the time. And I didn't wipe it off. And we played. And I was like, wait a minute, this is better. That's so funny. So mine is related to that. but And I don't remember exactly when it was. But it's something I noticed and I mentioned it to you 
And then you confirmed. And then I said, okay, this must be right. So again, it's the classic trio of me, you, and Pavel. So the first time I really thought about it is however many years ago, I gave Pavel a disc to slick. And he not only pours a lot of slick onto the disc, like way more than I would have thought, he then takes his bare hand, sticks it into the puddle of silicone, and rubs the slick in with his hand. So his hands are covered in silicone, and he just wipes them on his shirt a little bit and proceeds to jam. And I just thought, that is incredible. I mean, people are so worried about having silicone on their hands, and it's going to affect their throws and their catches, this, that, and whatever. And here's Pavel using his hand as a slick rag. And that was not a one-time thing. I have never seen Pavel slick it any other way but his bare hand. And then I think shortly after that, I saw you do the same thing. And I asked you about it and you said, yeah, like, I mean, the more slick, the better. And it doesn't bother me if it's on my hands. And I still slick it with a rag, like a human being. I'm not a barbarian like you guys. But <laughs> I think it brought home the point to me that you can't have too much slick. Yeah. Can't have too much slick. And I'll give you one more story, which is I think I'm still mad at Paul and Daniel because in 2019 when we were playing, I was pushing so hard to have these uber slick discs and both of them are very much in the not too slick category. Paul constantly says, I don't want my disc too fast, which I find so funny. And so we used their disc and there was one move I remember distinctly where I tried to do something and it was absolutely a lack of slick that caused the problem. Like the on my nail a little tiny bit and it was fine like it just kind of was set too early and I had to do this emergency chair maneuver I think it was the most difficult chair I ever caught in my life <laughs> but in my mind I was like oh man if only they let me slick this disc that wouldn't have happened yeah I remember you said it was like the Zach Galifianakis gif going through your head while that chair was in the air what's that How, you remember things I don't remember what's that gif it's like uh he's like thinking and in the gif like a bunch of like math like pops up on the screen and it's like doing a bunch of calculations oh i know I, I could not i remember it so distinctly i'm sure someone could pull up the video and you can see i catch this chair that just everything went wrong and somehow i found it but i mean plenty of other times like that you don't find it so it's just kind of luck but all right i got one more for you this is another one that i think will warrant its own episode uh and this is a classic where I'm asking you the question, but it's really because I want to blither about it because it's something I feel so passionately about. <laughs> but underrated, overrated, or properly rated speed flow. So speed flow is the one where you catch it and you throw it like in the same motion, right? Okay, this is, that's a great point. So what is speed flow? I'm sure there's some old timers who could give us a whole 10 page dissertation on what is speed flow. But in my mind, I have a simple definition, which is it's basically catch and throw where the players are throwing to each other more or less horizontally. And the reason I say it like that is I distinguish speed flow from quick. If the players are standing pretty close together and I'm setting a downwind drag kind of set, I'm just throwing it up but I'm using a downwind drag angle. So the disc is going into the player's body just like they would set themselves. And it's basically just giving a player the easiest set possible to do a catch. It's the same set you'd use to practice a catch. So that I consider quick catch. You're close to, like the way to remember it is you're close together. So the catches are very quick. Speed flow, you're standing further apart than is usual for freestylers. And you're throwing more like ultimate throws to each other. 
and doing advanced catches. Now, part of that can be what you said, which is you're supposed to catch it and throw it with the same hand in one motion. But whether you do that or not, I'm still going to call it speed flow for the purposes of this segment. Okay, got it. So I need a two-part answer. In the jam, it is overrated, but in competition, as of 2020, it is properly rated. Okay, so explain both. Okay, so in the jam, I think it breaks the flow if it's not used at the right time. And an easier way to deal with it is just never to do it at all. Mm, Okay. Why do you think it breaks the flow? Uh, Because... I think most people expect a high spin throw after a catch mm-hmm. and it's kind of jarring if you don't do a high spin throw and when you when you transition from like a like a normal co-op with high spin into a quick catch you have to rely on the other person to like also make that trend mm-hmm. and so there's just more going on there's like way more contact so it's like a higher level move okay that's so in the right go ahead go ahead yeah, in the right situation, it does work. And I've definitely been in jams where someone will catch it. And it'll just like, you know, like, I mean, yeah, I guess that's like a quick catch. So even in the scenario where it does work, it's a quick catch in your, by your definition. I know. I, it's probably unfair. I feel like I, I'm tilting my hand a little bit here. I probably have invented quick catch in my head as a separate category. As like, here is speed flow that I like. And here is speed flow that I have <laughs> more complicated opinions about. Okay, but we'll set that aside. So you have some mixed feelings about it in the jam. And then tell me why it's, did you say properly rated in competition? Properly rated now. Because of the execution multiplier in the judging system, you're getting phrases for every speed flow interaction, which is essential. Yeah, so I won't go too much into detail. We'll have a whole bunch of podcasts about the judging system, I'm sure. But basically under the current system, if you've been living under a rock and or not competing for a while, the judging system rewards teams for having more phrases the idea being that if one team has a hundred catch attempts in the routine and they drop it five times that team performed better than a team that had 10 phrases and dropped it five times with the idea being that the first team had a 95 percent catch rate and the second team had a 50 percent catch rate so even though they dropped it the same number of times one team kind of put the disc at risk a lot more and so under the new system having phrases is really beneficial so speed flow is the easiest way, besides quick catch, to get a lot of phrases. <laughs> so I agree with all that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold back as much as I can, because I do think we have to have a whole speed flow podcast, because I have so many mixed emotions about it. But I'll, I'll, answer, I'll split my answer into the two parts you mentioned, and then add one part, which is the part I feel the most strongly about. So in jamming, I actually kind of disagree with you in the sense that I think speed flow or quick catch done right, which is exceedingly rare, done right adds a nice bit of spice to a jam. And I, like any spice in a well-trained chef's hands, it should be used very sparingly. So I think a lot about the cadence of a New York jam where you kind of do a few co-ops, then you break it up with some indies, go back to co-ops, and you're kind of going an indie co-op thing, which I really appreciate. And then you'll sprinkle in a little bit of speed flow every now and then. And it kind of just, it's like a good song. It's like the bridge to the song that kind of varies the pace and tempo a little bit. But people have to expect it and people have to know what it is. Because a lot of times when you throw a speed flow throw in a jam, even good players start trying to delay it. And you're like, what are you doing? That's like, 
not what you're supposed to do with that. But there's another problem, which is that a lot of times people start speed flow sections and then they just do speed flow until they drop it five times. So if I do speed flow, I try to do just two, three, four catches and then move on. I don't want to do it until I drop it. I want to just lock it in, get that little texture and, and move on. On the competition side, I would almost say it's underrated now because it's so valuable to have those phrases. And you also actually get a fair amount of diff. So even if you're only getting threes, fours, or fives for your guidance speed flow or flawed speed flow, those are good safety net difficulty phrases. So right now the current system, I always get this wrong, but if it's three minutes, it judges 14 or 16 phrases, whatever. The 12. Word. 12 phrases. I thought that's whatever. You could 12 <laughs> phrases are judged in a three minute routine. And, you know, you want to have 12 really difficult phrases, but you're probably going to drop some of them. And so you need some extra ones and you might have a really hellish round. And if you do having a few fours and fives in your back pocket from your speed flow that you were able to get in under 10 seconds is really valuable, but we'll save that for a judging competition podcast. What I really want to talk about is the obsession in our sport with speed flow as a gateway to freestyle, which I'm going <laughs> to get a lot of hate for this. I know I'm, we said when we made this podcast that our Q ratings, were going to plummet because we're going to tell people our actual opinions. And when you learn more about someone, a lot of times you find that you don't like them as much as you thought you did. So I'm ready for the hate. Bring it on. I, I, I know I'm in the minority here. I do not view speed flow as a good gateway to freestyle. And I think the way we have tried to position speed flow has really hurt our efforts to grow the sport. And let me tell you briefly why I think this, because I want to talk about it in another podcast later. When people come up to me when I'm freestyling and they say, that's really cool. I want to learn how to do that. The worst thing I can do is say, well, let me show you something completely different from what I'm doing right now. <laughs> so I was thinking about this today in a petition of the podcast and I was thinking what we do what the like mainstream view in our sport is like the karate kid. So this kid wants to learn karate and Mr. Miyagi's like, cool, like let's wash my house first and like clean my car and like scrub my walls. And in the Karate Kid, which is a fictional movie, the kid does all those things and becomes really great at karate. Awesome. A normal kid in 2022 who wanted to learn karate, if Mr. Miyagi's like, come wash my car, they would say, no, I was interested in the karate thing you were doing, not the washing car nonsense that you say is going to make me better. So if people see me freestyling, I show them what I'm doing. And the first thing I show them is the nail delay. And people lose their mind when I tell them that I show new players the nail delay. But here's the thing. The nail delay is so fun when you're a new player. You've never seen it before. It's probably what attracted you to the freestyle in the first place. Because a lot of times people say, how do you spin it on your finger? And I say, let me show you, not let me take you to do speed flow. I say, I will show you this delay. And yes, you will struggle with it and it'll be hard. But the part that makes it hard is what makes it fun for people. And I can usually get someone to feel the delay at least once or twice in the first couple of minutes. And they get a huge smile on their face and think it's really fun. Whereas speed flow for a lot of people, either it's like familiar enough, they're like, well, that's not really what I wanted to do. Or it's not that exciting to them. And here's my last bit. And I promise I'll save all this vitriol for another podcast. And I know I'm going to get a lot of hate for this. 
before I was a freestyler, before I knew anything about freestyle, I, like many of us, was an ultimate player. And one thing I did a lot was I played catch with my friend Phil Jackson in high school. And quick aside, I was not an athlete before I was a freestyler. I was a musician. I was so bad at sports, but I needed a sports credit in high school. So I managed the girls lacrosse team. Why did I manage the girls lacrosse team? Because my high school girlfriend was the goalie on the girls lacrosse team. But what did I do as the manager of the girls lacrosse team? I played frisbee with my friend Phil Jackson every day. I was a terrible girls lacrosse manager, although I was very, I was like a good luck charm. That was my one positive attribute. And Phil and I would play just throw and catch all day long. And every now and then Phil would do like a behind the back catch or an underleg throw. And I'd be like, don't do that. <laughs> that looks really <laughs> silly. And looking back, I think it's hilarious that me as a freestyler told one of my best friends, like, please stop doing these silly trick catches when we're throwing. It looks so dumb. It's embarrassing. And now I'm like the king of embarrassment, just going out, fumbling around, trying to freestyle. But we sort of assume that speed flow is going to be attractive to people because it's simple. But my general impression is that if someone is interested in freestyle, they're going to be interested in the parts of freestyle that they've never seen before. And those are the parts that I want to show them if they're interested in learning. Of course, if someone says, teach me how to throw, teach me how to catch, I will do that. But if they come up to me, as most people do, and say, how do I spin it on my finger? I show them how to spin it on my finger, not how to do speed flow. End of, end of, that's, I think that's our first rant. Like, I think we should just mark that off. First rant in the books. It was bound to happen. I still have so many more things I want to say about it. But this podcast is technically about the world's routines. But I just, I just, I wanted to plant the seed so that people know looking forward, they're going to hear more about my crazy conspiracy theory views of speed flow. But I just, I wanted to lay the foundation for future podcasts. All right. Yeah. You've converted me. I'm a loyal center delay first. And you know, not to brag, but like find someone who's converted more people to freestyle than I have. And maybe I'll question my (laughs) views, but I've got a very good track record right now of people. I, I'd say half the students at Duke University know how to do the nail delay now. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it definitely keeps people interested. I loved learning it when I was playing. And I think we just assume because it bores us now as experienced freestylers that it bores new players. But believe me, it doesn't. <laughs> okay. All right. Was that our last, that our was, last topic? That was our last one. I, all right. I think all 40 minutes of us talking is probably plenty for our warm-up segment. Okay. All right. So now we're transitioning over to our main topic, which is watching the world's podiums. So I think first I'll go over how we're going to do it like technical wise so you can follow along if you're listening. So in the description, I have, what is it? 12 links, one for each place on the podium and they're kind of sorted. What we're going to do is James and I are going to open the first link and we will play the video at the same time and we will talk over it if you can't watch the youtube videos along with us that should be okay you can still figure out what's happening based on the context of our conversation yeah we have no idea this is going to work but we're going to do our best we'll find a way to cut it so it's hopefully interesting but we hope people will be able to follow along at home but no matter how we do it it's definitely worth just watching the routines it's the world championship if you're interested enough to listen to this podcast you should be interested enough to watch those routines and hopefully we'll have some things to say about them. 
Okay, so while you're getting the description and the links ready, I was going to go over some disclaimers before we start watching these and commenting. So the first one is, we know that watching the video is much different than watching it in person, and all the judges are watching this in person, and all our feelings are like from a time when we watched these in person, but we're going to talk about it now by watching the video. So there's like some going to be some differences or... <laughs> It's just gonna be like one extra factor in our analysis. Uh, next, like we're gonna talk about the players as competitors, like they're all our friends, but I plan to talk about them as like when Edo and Benny go out onto the field, they're gonna be Edo or they're gonna be like the number one seed mixed players, not like my friends that I try and get to come to Seattle every year, but they never do for some reason. Maybe because you're making podcasts where you're going to talk about them as players, but continue. <laughs> okay. Uh, next, uh, a lot of this is going to revolve around the judging system, but I just want to say we have a lot of influence into the judging system, but we don't have a lot of authority to change it. Like we did a lot of work on the judging system, but it's not like either of us like made all these rules. It was like designed by a committee. So we just have like influence on it. So we will probably disagree with the judging system at some point. And it's just like, it's just like a thing that we are affected by as well. Like it's, I don't think we would call it our baby or anything like that. Definitely not. No. Okay. Last thing, like what happened happened? Like those winners of the four divisions, they, they earn their titles. Like they have that they're like, they're real world champions, no matter what we say. Yeah, let me add a little bit. I totally agree that video is different than in person. I mean, Dougie says it's never as bad as you think or as good as you think when you watch it on video. And that's not because video is better or worse. It's often just different how it feels. Um, agreed, we'll probably reiterate this a lot in the podcast. We are going to do our best to talk very frankly about people as freestylers and their skills and who's better, who has a better guidance, who's a better competitor, whatever. That is not a reflection of how we feel about them as people or as our friends. And we hope people will take it in good spirits and know that there are our opinions. And we don't mean to disrespect anybody who we say is, you know, maybe not as good at X as somebody else. Um, definitely agree with Ryan that there, like, we'll definitely have to have a lot of podcasts on the judging system. It's a really complicated subject. It has a long history. It has kind of a controversial history. And, you know, Ryan did a ton of work here but neither he and certainly not I had the authority to make it the way we wanted to make it. Not only was it a committee process, but we were pretty bound by the old system and we were bound by survey results and community feedback. So it's kind of a compromise effort and I'm sure some people are happy about it and some people aren't and that's just the way it is. And definitely agree with Ryan. Like we do not, like we might talk about how we disagree with the results. Um, we have to watch them. I haven't watched them. Um, but we're never, ever going to challenge publicly the validity or legitimacy of results here. And I think we're a small sport. We're a community sport. We shouldn't be questioning the winners and losers of our tournaments that are, that we like judge as a community. Uh, but we still think it's okay to have like different opinions about what the results are. So everyone, if you're have a world title, that's your world title. And we're never going to besmirch that but we are going to talk about our different opinions about that. Um, oh, and then also like, look, I get Ryan and I like won some of these divisions and we'll probably talk about tournaments in the future that hopefully we win. And we know that that's kind of weird and 
we'll try to be our do our best to be objective about it. I I have a feeling me and you will be harder on ourselves than other people would be, but uh, we'll we'll see. We we totally understand the conflict of interest, but we're going to do our best. Cool. All right, should we get started? Yeah, let's do it. All right, do you have the Zofia and Benedict video yep. queued up? All right. All right, let's start in three, two, one, go. All right, first thing, this team has a challenge because Zofia is primarily counter and Benny is primarily clock, but so far a really strong start. Yep. Oh, we already got some counter out. Yeah, so first two wow. clock, then counter. Is that you a think this is already? a choreographed routine? It looks pretty put together. Uh oh. It's a little bit rough middle section there. One nice thing is that they both throw a lot of spin, which I think makes it so much easier to pull off these combos. And it also helps when you're using your weaker spin to have that little bit extra. So if you're not as comfortable with counter, you're going to want a little bit more spin to be successful at it. But unfortunately, a lot of times you don't get more spin because people are throwing with their non-dominant hand. <laughs> yeah, for sure. One thing I want to mention is, does Zofia have the best two-handed counter brush? Oh, she does it a hundred percent in your routine as well. A hundred percent. I couldn't believe it when we were building our routine. There was a few times where, you know, I kept being like, "Oh, let's do a tip back section." And then I thought, "Oh, but it's counter." And then she'd be like, "No, no, no, I can do it." <laughs> it's one. It's one of those classic routine building situations where every time you try it, I think like there's no way this is going to work. Like it just seems impossible, but I don't think she ever misses it. I mean, she gets it every single time. <laughs> so one more thing about Zofia and I have a little bit more insight into her because we play together this year and this is going to be both a compliment and possibly viewed as backhanded, but I mean it absolutely as a compliment, which is that Zofia seems so much better than she is which is like again i mean it as a huge compliment <laughs> which is that if you just watch her do an indie you would think okay this person's been playing six seven years looks like a veteran really clean and controlled but then you'll be like oh but you can't delay it counter with your left hand i don't know if that's true but like some really big things she hasn't learned yet because she's only been playing a couple years and here she is making the podium at the world championship so i mean it as a compliment but there's something like very deceptive about watching her where she looks like a pro, but she's still a really new player. So what did you think of Benny's performance? Like, I think that this is her real coming out party year because she's been playing for a while, but with varying degrees of seriousness. And I think this is one of her first big competitions. And she definitely shocked me with her level of skill. Like, what was your experience? Yeah, I think I had the same thing because like my expectation or I think the first time I watched her play in semis I was like Benedict overperformed yeah but as she played in every round after that was just her new normal yeah and I agree was, I mean I think a yeah. lot of us were talking about that we watched the semis uh, especially of mixed her and Edo and I thought that's an incredible routine one of the best routines I've seen but there's no way she can do that twice and then she did. I mean, absolutely. I mean, she has some of the hardest moves in the routine. And here you saw an incredible amount of skill. And 
yeah, I mean, it's no surprise she's now a world champion. But I think that's hindsight is 2020 because I think going in, it's I don't think people really had her on their radar as one of the top players right now. Yep. Also, have you seen her overhand wrist flick? It's better than mine. That that is not <laughs> an exaggeration. I guarantee you, if we got out the Z meter and we measured her overhand and my overhand, hers is far better than mine. It's so clean and so efficient. It has the best sound. It's it's amazing. And, and I really want to study her mechanics because it's just she gets every ounce of her power into the disc, which is so hard to do. I mean, so many of us are throwing so hard, but is it 70% or 90% that's actually making it to the disc? And whatever Benny is doing, it is all getting to the disc and it's coming out with incredible spin. Yep. Okay. So I think we're going to be comparing the routine. So let's just keep moving on to the next video. Okay. So let me know when you have the next link loaded. Okay. I have got the next link. Okay. Katie and Char. Yep. Okay. All right. Three, two, one, go. This is Katie's first worlds. It's like kind of her. Yeah, some 80s music. Good save there. That If you miss that yep. save, that destroys your whole routine. So that was so important that Katie got that. Great Bosis. You know, both of them actually throw pretty well. I mean, I know Katie's still working to get a little bit more spin on her clock backhand, but that upside down overhand looks pretty good. And Char has really improved her throws a lot in the last few years. They have a lot more spin on them. Wow, great bad attitude. Okay. Tell me your Char opinion on that elbow trap. Did she mean to do that, you think? I think she was trying to go for the elbow trap, but it didn't turn right. Would you give an execution error there? Uh, I don't know. I needed to see it. I mean, I guess I wouldn't have seen it in real time. I might have. Now, Katie missed that flamingitis pull attempt. Now, this is something that's, I think, harder to judge under the new system, which is failed attempts because it matters so much more to the difficulty than it used to because difficulty matters more and each phrase is judged independently. So she has to get a score for that attempt. And I would guess she got a low score there. Yeah. Like how I think about it is how hard would it for me to replicate that miss? Yeah. And I don't think it would be very hard. Exactly. Like I thought about this a lot, which we'll get to with like Kubana and Chesko's routine where if you're trying the hardest move, it's like, it's not that hard to try the hardest move, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Now that UD hitch kick is really good from KD and not a lot of other people yeah. can do that. To me, the hardest part of that is that roll into the UD again. Yeah. I'm like controlling it. Like I see you do it all the time, but I just assume it's really hard because I can't do it. Yeah. I mean, obviously KD is one of the best rollers in the world already, which is pretty amazing because I always explain rolls as, one of the most time-taking, painstaking things to learn and get good at. It's There's no real shortcuts. But here she is only a couple years into playing with impeccable roles. Yeah, they're rocking this routine right now. Like, I was sitting next to uh, Margaret, 
because I was training her up to like run the next two rounds. Yeah. And at this point, I was like, I think they're going to win. And like I make predictions. And I was like, at the end of this routine, I was like, if Ilka and Bianca don't catch six big catches, I think they're going to take second. Yeah. So I haven't even, I've honestly not seen Ilka and BB's round yet. I think I saw bits of it, but I was doing something at the tournament. But my impression is that this is a very strong routine. It's a little bit hard to focus and talk about it at the same time. The only elements that it was lacking, I think, was it didn't feel quite as cohesive in terms of here are highly developed co-ops that they worked a lot on. And I could be wrong about that, but it seemed more of like the impromptu co-ops were like, we're standing kind of far apart. I do a few moves, set it to you. You do a few moves. You set it to my catch rather than what you often see in more complicated routines where the players are close together and you would have to have practiced that co-op many times in order to get the timing right among the players. Now that's my only criticism and that's a huge nitpick from a routine that had incredible difficulty and still had a ton of great co-ops in it. Um, and yeah, like my understanding from the rumor mills is that this is a routine that maybe should have gotten first. And we'll see how I feel when I watch Ilka and BB. Thoughts? Okay. Yeah. So at this point, they're like finished. And I'm like trying to like tell Margaret what to expect. And I'm like, it's all about diff in the judging system now. Yeah. Like you like made a big point about like the co-ops and like the maturity of them. But AI, in my opinion, just like doesn't matter. That's that's a great point. I mean, definitely on the diff scale, they rocked it. And you would expect that too, honestly. Like Katie's really hammering the diff these days. And Char also has some wild moves now. I mean, she is someone who has really made a lot of strides. I mean, she's been playing a long time, always been a great player. But I think the last couple of years, she's really been on a Frisbee sabbatical and just going to every tournament and being the death jammer. And it's definitely showing. Yeah, like she, there was traditional diff in that routine as well. Like Char hit the spinning scarecrow. Yeah. Like that's legit diff. Yeah. And again, they were also navigating clock and counter really well because Char is predominantly counter. And I spoke, I think Katie's mostly clock, but they are obviously yeah. both pretty adept at the other spin. And I, I definitely didn't notice it. Like a lot of routines with players at different spins, you're kind of thinking about, well, like, you can tell that when it's counter, one of them really has to take the wheel and vice versa. But here they kind of both seemed pretty in control. Um, but okay, let's go Let's go to our last women's routine here. Okay. Bianca and Ilka. Tell me when you have it queued up. I have it queued up. Um, tell me when. All right. Three, two, one, go. All right. So one thing I didn't mention is we were watching these in the play order. So... In the current, I mean, seating probably matters in all sports, but it matters so much in freestyle. So this is a good start. I'm going to say it's going to be hard for me. This is not a cop-out. It's going to be hard for me to talk about these in the podcast and kind of judge them at the same time. Other than that drop, though, it's, yeah, this is a little sloppy. That's the risk of speed flow. Under the old system, they'd already have lost. Just for trying yep. speed flow. Okay, double disc. It's not very synch synchronized. 
Let's see. Yeah. That was a huge moment. That was a big moment. And Freddie pointed out what I was going to say, which is that they were a little too far away and they weren't quite synced up. But now they're down to one disc. Oh, and that's this great indie from Bianca. Like, don't you feel like you expect them to play well and like hit all their guidances and scarecrows? Yeah, well, this like... is something you pointed out to me that we've talked about a lot, which is how you played your expectations makes a big impact in how you're judged, but also a bigger impact in how the audience perceives you. So I'm going to make two points. One, I think there's a often a kind of big disconnect between how the audience perceives routines and how the judges perceive routines. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but... I find a lot of times when I'm in the audience, I tend to agree with everyone else in the audience. I'm like, oh, this is obvious how it should be. But a lot of times when I'm done judging and someone comes up to me and they ask me how it was, they have different views than I do. And I think there's something about judging that makes you look at a routine differently for better or worse that gets lost when you're the audience. And one thing that I think accounts for that is that audience, maybe more than judges, pays attention to whether a team overperforms or underperforms. So I think... Part of what can happen in a situation like this, where some people might think that like Shar and Ilka did better, I'm sorry, uh, Shar and Katie did better, is like sometimes the quote unquote better team or the higher seated team underperforms their expectation. So it feels kind of bad and like the audience reaction is lower, but the actual, like if you're scoring the objective measures of freestyle, it should score higher. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that applies yeah, like, here because I can't really... It's the absolute term. <laughs> What's that? It's like the absolute value of what they did. It's like not relative to anything. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Like the, And that's maybe the way to put the difference. Like judges see better, I think, the absolute value of routines, whereas the audience feel like the emotional arc of a routine. Now, again, I'm not saying that applied here because honestly, I cannot focus on the routines while I'm talking about <laughs> them. But I do see that like, for what Ilka and Bibi would be expected to do, because they're some of the top players in the world, they're, women, they're world champions, they're super strong competitors, that was probably not the routine that they wanted. Whereas I do think Char and Katie probably hit the routine that they definitely wanted. But I, again, like I can't really judge, but I do know in the moment that a lot of people thought that Char and Katie would have won. Yeah, I think I was one of those people. Yeah, and that might color my view too, because I think you told me that when I asked how the last team played. Um, but I definitely heard that from other sources. But again, like that's not uh, that's definitely not challenging. Katie, or uh, I keep mixing everyone's everyone's names up. BB and Elka's routine, and there's one other thing. Wait, I lost my train of thought. You can cut this. There's something I wanted to say. All right, I can go while you're thinking. Okay. Yeah, so in the moment, I did, like, as soon as Bianca and Ilka finished, I was like, I thought Katie and Char had it. Yeah. But now, watching back the videos, it was all about counting diff. Yeah. Like, I think 
there was a bunch of diff that I just didn't see in Bianca Noko's routine till I watched the video. I'm like, wow, they did have a lot of hard moves. Yeah. And those hard moves got them a lot of diff and the, like that's why they won. Yeah, I guess I'll echo that and add a couple things to it. So one, I think that's so true and this will come up a lot and I'll probably pick another section to talk about it. Uh, the new diff system is a little bit more rational about how difficulty works and a lot of that gets lost on the audience. So one team that has 15 highly difficult phrases is going to crush a team that has three of the best phrases of all time, but seven other not so good phrases. And I think that's right that the team with 15 difficult phrases like showed quote unquote more difficulty and that's why they have a higher difficulty score. But the audience usually kind of gravitates to the one or two things that they remember being really cool and it can distort their perception of it. So I think that's part of it. But two, there is this thing about reputation is really important and seeding is really important to your competition results. And there's something that feels really icky about that. And I certainly, if I could push a button and get rid of that, I would, because it's unfair that like, just because you're one of the best players, people give you higher scores than maybe you're supposed to get. Sometimes it cuts the other way, but like usually you get more points for being a better player. But at the same time, there's something somewhat equitable with that. Like of all the horrible biases we have in our sport, a bias where like people who have traditionally performed better get higher scores is not the worst one because you do kind of have to earn it. So like I think, and I think I might've even told a couple of players this who had disappointing years this year where maybe objectively, if we could get rid of that bias, they would have scored better. I told them like, you got to take your lumps at the beginning because people aren't ready to recognize you as one of the best players yet. But after a couple of years, you build that reputation and then you're going to get the benefit of it. So it really is bad. Like I don't want to, I don't want to act like this is a good thing or like it's okay that this happens, but it's one that I feel better about than the other kinds of problems that we have in our system, because you can overcome it if you just keep playing and keep trying. And I know it's disappointing, but you got to take your lumps. I don't know. Is that like unfair of me? No, no. I think that's that's the right message where it's like, even though it wasn't this year, you got to play for next year. Yeah. I mean, I think I like to say like, you'll get that one back. Like if you, if you don't get the one this year, you'll get it back. Like I promise. And it just takes a little bit of persistence. Yep. But right, I, I, I do want to oh. make sure though. So I, again, like I'm having a lot of trouble like actually figuring out what's happening, but you feel a little bit better from watching these routines that Ilk and BB showed the stuff that they needed to win. Exactly. Yeah. So that's great. I mean, I think that's a good thing. I, I next time we do this, I'm going to watch other routines beforehand too. So I can like okay. reassess, but I do agree that I, I saw a lot of amazing stuff from them. So it doesn't shock me at all that they won. Um, but I understand how like the emotional tenor of the moment might've felt different for some people. Okay. I have a hypothetical for you. Do you, okay, so seeding is earned. And like in women's, we play the semifinals just to seed the teams for the finals. Mm -hmm. Do you think the podium would look different if exactly everything happened the same except Katie and Shar played last in the pool? That's a great question. So again, because I feel like I'm having trouble judging this while talking about it, I'm going to say I don't know, but here's my not cop-out answer. They, I think they were within a point of each other or two yeah, points of each close. other. That is such a small margin of error that switching the seedings could have easily switched the results. 
Do you also think like the farther apart the teams are, like the first team versus the last team makes a bigger difference in like the seeding advantage? Say that one more time. So like the advantage you get from seeding is bigger, like the farther the teams are. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's way harder for the eighth place team than the second place team. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's only, I only can remember one time where the eighth seeded team won the world championship, which is 2013, Jake and Arthur. But just from those names alone, you can guess why they would have won. Uh, But absolutely. I mean, this is something that I think about a lot and we should talk about more at some point, but there's a lot of anchoring effects in freestyle judging. So anchoring is a concept in behavioral economics that I'll probably butcher, but it's something like if you put a number in someone's head, it's hard for them to move away from that. So in negotiations, the way it works is you say, I want you to pay me $500,000 next year as my salary. And they say, whoa, I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. But I'll give you $100,000. But if you went into that same negotiation with all the same skills, same person, same everything, and you started out by saying, I want to make $100,000 next year, they would say, oh, no way. I'll give you 60. So like anchoring, like the number you start with really matters. So when judges are judging seated rounds, really any round, which is be the proof and the pudding, but especially seated rounds, the eighth place team is getting a bunch of threes and fours. It should be twos or threes, but I'll put that aside. They're getting threes and fours. And that enables the next team to get fours and fives, which enables the next team to get fives and six. So like once judges are routinely giving out sevens, eights, and nines, it's harder for them to go back and start giving out fours and fives. And to be clear, this is a unconscious psychological bias. I'm not saying like, it's actually hard for judges to do that. Or there's like some nefarious thing going on. I'm just saying the human brain, once it's set on certain numbers, has a hard time moving away from them. And that's why seeding is very important. Yep. Okay. Was there anything else that we should talk about for? No, let's move on to the next one. Okay. All right. Open pairs. This this is the one I'm going to be most sensitive, but I actually have not been able to watch my routine. I I have watching my routines. This is going to surprise people because I make all these videos, but truly routines, competitions, watching them is like listening to myself talk. Like I, it's like hating your own voice. I cannot watch my routines. Also, like you said, the routine format is just, to me, it's not really freestyle-y. I don't like it. So this is going to be painful for me, but let's, let's do it. Okay. All right. Do you have it ready? Yes, I do now. Three, two, one, go. All right. This is Andres and Pablo. We probably haven't been doing that very well. These, this quick catches. This is what I call a quick catches. And they just should have gotten a bunch of like five, sixes, sevens, and eights just for that in 15 seconds. Like that should be so valuable. Yeah, so valuable. To be clear, they were seated pretty early, right? They were like six or seven, maybe five. Yep. Maybe like the third team out in an eight team pool. Yeah. And they, yeah, this is a monstrous start. And I remember actually, we'll see, but I remember the first minute and a half uh, thinking like, well, there's, that's unbeatable. And then I think they have a meltdown at some point. I mean, yeah, like, yep. Andreas is clearly someone that if he were able to compete in more major tournaments, he would be recognized as a top five, top 10 player in the world. No question. And then Pablo has been competing more and is one of the best players and everybody knows it. It's like this, I think this team, like 
maybe caught some people off guard because they are not quite as well known, but triple, triple. <laughs> That's like, that should be a 10. Uh, yeah. But like, this should be one of the favorites. It's just people aren't ready for that because they haven't seen it before exactly all right so that's the first thing that kind of went majorly wrong and that's the risk of a move like that like the donkey kick like any move where if you do it incorrectly the disc can go flying is pretty scary the crowd was definitely so i was just gonna mention those you the word electric was thrown around a couple times during the tournament but it was like the perfect word for this routine yeah but that's like the kind of moment that gets them though like there's a big difference between dropping on the catch and dropping in the middle of a co-op it is so Mm, much worse versus bad drops to drop it in the middle of a co-op like he just did there so this is why they didn't win now i would totally understand if people think they still should have won because it was so electric and i don't know what the number is a minute two minutes of the routine was by far the best two minutes of the finals but some of these kinds of drops, like there, he went for a long re-rev and dropped it. That's what will really kill you under really any judging system. Yeah, that's kind of an old system strategy right there, trying to like prevent the drop. You just take the drop and throw it again. Yeah. This, you know, this one, for some reason, I'm a little able, better able to process. And this is making me feel a little better because I was worried that they got more boost than they did. But watching it on video, like maybe the good thing about video is I do think it erases some of the emotion. That's, that's arguably the bad thing about it. But like I, I'm seeing like, oh, well, there's some really tough drops in this, despite the crazy diff. That was amazing, though. I mean, there's no way around it. That was amazing, amazing round. Like if you before the tournament started you like heard andreas and pablo were playing together who do you think would be carrying that team i actually think i would have believed andreas and that's only because i've heard chatter the last year or two that he's one of the best players in the world from different people who i respect and so he was kind of on my radar and then i've seen him in the the tiny rooms and really watched his very unique game evolve so that it doesn't, I mean, I'm assuming you agree that Andres probably was carrying the weight on this team, despite Pablo being yeah. one of the best players in the world. Um, but another question would be, would it surprise me that they made the podium? And I think the answer would be yes. But when I see it, it doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I'm like surprised they made the podium from so far down in the pool. Like they played so early. Yeah, I mean, and this sounds like a dig, but it's not. Part of it is that there was a lot of teams that I expected to perform way better. Like, I mean, even like me and Graf, I'll say it right now, like we didn't play that well, but like Edo and Marco, I expected to be a heavy like favorite. I don't know. Like I thought they were going to be a really strong uh, team, but they just didn't, they didn't have it that day. That's common. We all drop it. And you know, like one thing I should say that we didn't really mention freestyle is a high variant sport. So the best teams don't always win, right? So, and like, I made my whole career out of that. Like when I was number one player in the world, I was not the best player at all, which we should talk about at some point. I was the worst player and I won tons of tournaments. That's why I was number one in the world. In every one of those tournaments, I was not the best player and my team was not the best team. So you can 
win a lot of freestyle tournaments, not being the best player. And a big part of that is luck. There's just no way around it. There is just a certain amount of luck that goes into winning tournaments. And so it's not surprising that lots of the best teams didn't make the podium and that like this kind of sleeper team made it. But it was still like when it happens, it's still kind of surprising. Like there were all these incredible teams that didn't make it. Uh, but I also think this is kind of like the beginning of a story. Like in five years, not even five, in five years when Andreas and Pablo have won like four world titles, it's going to be like, oh, well, obviously they got third in 2022. Like, duh. <laughs> so there's a little bit of element of that. Like when we look back at this, it'll be, oh, well, yeah, they were two of the best players in the world. No surprise. They could have won the whole thing. People just were slowly realizing that. Yeah, I think what would impress me the most is Andres did that the entire tournament. Oh, it's like for such sure. a veteran move. Yeah, I mean, and he was. Oh, I turned on Siri again. I don't know why she does that. I'll turn her off next time. <laughs> um, Andres performed incredibly the entire tournament, and I will say there's something that I'm really jealous of Andres, which is another good podcast segment. Andres plays with the ferocity of an underdog that I really miss. Mm-hmm. So I remember, and you can go back and look at these things, like Paganello 2012, I was going for crazy doubles and triples and moves like barely within my range the whole tournament. Just like like my life depended on it, a gun to my head. I was trying the hardest things I knew how to do. And I cannot play that way anymore. It's so hard. I, I play from a place of fear not a place of like aggression. I'm going to bring this up when we're watching you because <laughs> it is so apparent. Yeah. So I just watching Andres, it just gives me like that nostalgia of that positive feeling of it was so fun when y- you were the underdog, but you knew you were better than that. And you were just like, I'm going to show everyone here how amazing I am. And Andres, like the whole weekend was just going crazy. So, yeah. Yep. Cool. We should invent a word for that time in your career but all i can say is all you players out there i whenever i see like an up-and-comer player like that i haven't talked to andres about this but like i say enjoy it while you can because it's like the most magical time in your freestyle career when you just get to play with abandon and i try and i'm still trying to find it again but it's hard it's really it becomes a lot harder all right all right next do you have the next video loading kubana and chesco Kubana and Chesco. And let me open by saying their semis round was one of the best routines I've ever seen. And I know people throw that around all the time. I'm not one of those people. Like it was really incredible what they did in the semis. Um, I didn't watch yeah, all of I did of have their... to go back and watch it. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't watch all of theirs in real time. So this is a little bit fresh for me. And again, like I didn't feel great about how Graf and I played. So we'll see how I feel about this. Okay. All right, ready? Three, two, one, go. Quick catches. Yep. But see, these yeah, quick catches about... aren't nearly as high value as Pablo and Andres. Yeah, there's it's the time element. It's like diff to time is what you're... Yeah, that the song didn't help them there because the song made them go slower than they needed to for those quick catches. But then, I don't know if they planned this or not. You know, I have this whole thing about under the legs are basically should be banned and no one should do them. We can talk about it in another episode, but... Like, I would not use the World Championship Open Pairs Finals to do an under the leg off a quick catch. Like, a quick catch set is your opportunity to do one of your best catches. 
So like that was a little bit of a missed opportunity. But otherwise, now they're crushing. Like that, they they're both like the best kickers. They missed that one. Talking about adjusting expectations because they hit this so well in the semis and everyone was like, can they do that again in the finals? Well, that's the thing people have talked about for as long as I've been playing, which is you don't really want to nail it in the semis because then it's that anchoring thing where like you've it, but it's kind of like reverse anchoring where you set a really high bar at the beginning and now you can only do worse than that. Now, two things just happened that I want to point out that was kind of like how I understood how maybe they didn't win. I'm not saying they shouldn't have, but they had these really hard moves planned that were essential to their difficulty score that they missed. And that will kill you under any judging system, not just the new one. But I think that's what hurt them. Like two of their main, like four or five kick combos didn't work. Like that's another one right there. Like that's a crazy kick combo, but it didn't work monster gosh that's so painful how do you do that kubana's got beautiful form i love her game it does it's everything has its own time i think that's the best way i can describe it it's yeah. like nothing's rushed and there's no waiting before or after now chesco is also one of my favorite players so chesco I mean, I feel a little bit more comfortable talking about this routine and like pointing out some of its flaws because I'm such a big fan of Kubana and Chesco and they know I am. So Chesco, I literally have all the trading cards of him in the world. Like when he went to Champ Britannia and they made trading cards, I collected all of his because I thought he was the most standout player there that like no one had heard of. And he's just now, I think, coming into his fully evolved competition form and he's ready to start winning huge tournaments. And he easily could have won Worlds. And it's amazing to see the growth in his game, as a competitor especially. Good ending. Yep. Again. Man, that was... Go ahead. The end. Yeah, like the ending 40 seconds is like what you need. Like the entire three minutes to win the World Championship. Like... Yeah, I mean, again, I'm being like totally honest. And again, it's also hard for me to like watch this in real time. I feel a little better watching the video than I did in the moment. Because definitely in the moment, I thought, oh man, like maybe we boost them. Obviously, we had nothing to do with it. We don't judge it. Also, should be clear, one pet peeve of mine is when people get mad at the people who win when they think they shouldn't have won. Because it's like, we don't judge ourselves. Like <laughs> we're, we're just playing. So if people say I win or say I lose, I, I didn't have anything to do with that. Like I just went out and played like everyone else did. Um, in the moment, I was kind of like, I thought maybe they played better than they did. But I think I know what happened, which is that they had about five or six signature moves that their routines depended on. Like the UD, Kubana, Guidus pull, the around the world kick, the foot cuff over turnover the pass. Tommy kick off of the kick tip. So I think yeah. almost all of those didn't work. So when you build your routine around those four or five elements and those four or five elements don't come through, it's really hard to win. Now the caveat to this is that this was a pretty sad open pairs finals because I do remember like I didn't watch all of everyone's routines because I was trying to warm up, but I watched like enough to have data for how I think I have to play. And this is kind of like the worst case scenario for me is like ironically, because 
I was like, oh man, it's wide open. Everyone's dropped it like 10 times. It's been pretty sloppy. All we have to do is go out and just not be terrible and we'll probably win. And I think that's why I think what you're going to say and what other people said, I came out with such a look of fear on my face because I think like, especially now I don't have that underdog status. I need that gun to my head of like, I have to play well. I need like the existence of actual pressure, like brings out all the positive stress that makes me compete well. But the like, you can't lose this and like the door is wide open that puts an enormous amount of strain on me where I'm like, Oh man, all I can do is lose. And like the good contrast is 2019 in 2019. I'm jumping the gun to graph in my routine here in 2019 before graph and I played, we played last just like this year was Freddie and Fabian. Freddie and Fabian hit one of the best routines that would have won virtually every single other year at Worlds. They had an incredible routine. And I watched the whole thing and I was like, okay, like it's their year. There's no way we can beat that. Graf didn't watch it. Graf comes up to me and he's like, how'd they do? I stone cold lied to him. I was like, no problem. We got this. And we go out there and we went dropless. And I think for me, like having that pressure was really good for me to be like, okay, like in some ways the pressure is off in terms of like this incredible routine happened. Like if I don't win, it's not surprising. But now I'm kind of like an underdog a little bit and I have to like overperform to do it. This was the opposite. Like watching this again kind of reminds me as like, okay, they missed all their signature co-ops. So the door is wide open. I think at this time I might have been thinking like Andres and Pablo were more threatening, but they also had a lot of drops. So, okay, let's see. Let's see if it's as bad as I remember. Oh man! All right, all right. Last one. Tell me when you're. Yep. I'm ready. opening it up. Oh, you're opening it. Okay, I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. Okay, I just remember we're gonna see the saddest double spinning chair you've ever done in your life. It started off rough because I threw it a little bit far, but then okay, we kind of reel it in here. See, that's like good quick catch because you can get some value out of it. It's also fast. Yeah, I try to play like, really fast. Like the first thing I noticed watching this in the semis is you just played faster than all the other teams. Like your diff per second is higher. I think a lot about that though, especially this year. Now that's where the routine went wrong because when Graf drops it at the very beginning of that co-op, now we're improvising and I think we basically lost most of our routine after this point, which is only like 40 seconds in. Is that my sad chair? That was a pretty sad. No, chair. there's it's the second one. You do it again and you're like, why did I do the same catch twice? I think it's the one though where I use different spins and people didn't realize that and it drove me crazy. Oh, okay. Is it that one? So that one, I just did my normal spinning direction, but that juice drop was really pathetic and I'm very sad about that. That happens. That's rough. Yep. That was like Chesco missing one of his signature moves. Yeah. In terms of devastation. I liked my form on that Flamingo, though. I was, like, really thinking about my form because my form usually falls apart when I compete. And I was trying to, like, not start to play ugly again. That's bad. It could tell. I could tell. It looked intentional. 
I think that's a sad chair, but that's a single. I think I think this happens to a lot of players. It definitely happens to me where like you revert back to some primitive form of your game when you compete sometimes. Like all the good habits I have fade a little bit when I'm competing. I think that was the double barrel guidance that won you. That like we kind of reel it in there. This isn't quite as bad as I remember, but I guess there's still time left. That was a little sloppy. Oh yeah, I remember there was just no spin left. Yeah, I think we're totally making this up now. That's I'm spinning the other way. Okay. So I probably didn't get credit for that. I mean, I didn't want to do a chair. I think I wanted to do a double double hammer there. This is improvised. So we got a time penalty, right? Yep. But you you hypothesized that it was probably worth it. Yeah, because you get credit for diff after the time now. And I think it's more than the 0 0.3, especially after the execution uh, multiplier. That's true. That makes sense. So what was I going to ask about that? How many points did we win by? I don't remember. Was it how close was it? Uh, let me look. I have it here. So you won by two points. So it was 145 to 143. So I mean, that's like that's very one percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's look, it's hard for me to watch, but I do think it's like Dougie says, it's not as bad as I remember. And I can see how it would happen because, look, no one likes this part of judging. But if you just go phrase by phrase, co-op by co-op, there was enough diff crammed in there to get a lot of value. Like, if you just go by doubles, there was probably four or five doubles in there. And that's really going to bring your score up a lot. Yeah, it's, you had a lot of traditional diff. I think that makes a big difference because people know what traditional diff looks like and they reward it. Yeah, it's yeah. it goes both ways though because I do... I don't usually look too much at diff, diff sheets because they're so meaningless, but I feel like whenever I look at my diff sheets, I never get like higher than a seven, even if I do like a triple barrel guidance. So I'm like, what is even the point? Like. There's really like nothing you can do to get a 10 unless it's like super wacky or you get the right judges. But I don't know, like whatever. I don't, I guess I'm like biased because I don't know, but I think I'm pretty down on myself. I was not super pleased with that routine and it's not going to be one that I tell the grandkids about, but it doesn't seem indefensible that we won. I think it's more just like some years everyone plays really well and it's like, like that's one kind of controversy. Everyone plays great and people disagree about who won. I think those are the most painful. This mm -hmm. is one where nobody played great and some people might not be happy about who won. And to me, it's like, I'm not going to complain about losing if I drop it five times, you know, like, and again, I'm saying that unfairly because this is the one that I won, but like, that's how I felt in the past. Like there have been times where I felt like I should have won where I didn't just like there's been times where I've won and felt like I shouldn't. And I just can't get upset about it if 
honestly, if I dropped it once, frankly, it's like, I could have done better. I could have done that better. Like I try to have a growth mindset about it. We've talked about this before of if I can't convince those nine judges that I should have won, then that's on me. Like, was there stuff I could have done better? Yes. If so, like I got to live with that. And yes, there might be times where like something really egregious happens where someone's clearly just has it out for you or something. I don't think that happens very much in our sport, but like some kind of like procedural or like intentional misjudging, that's one thing. But like nine judges giving their honest opinion and sometimes they favor you, sometimes they don't. There's not much you can do about it. But this year, open pairs, just not the most impressive rounds. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah. Just wanted to reiterate the thing about like, like some years you win and some years you don't, you just got to like power through it and like having a growth mindset and be like, I could have, I could have done better Yeah, and I think even it, overcome like what happened. Yeah. I mean, that's the main like, you're going to need that. You, you have to, because I think some people, it's actually, this, this is a somewhat of a tangent, but I'm going to go on it. Some people losing pushes them away and pushes them out of the sport. And some people winning pushes them out of the sport. So like, it's, kind of weird and i wish it were like that so like first the winning one is easy i think it's really sad when people win and they're like okay i'm done like see you later and we've definitely had instances of that and i think that's a bummer like i want people to keep playing but i definitely don't want people letting losing keep them from loving freestyle like if anything it really should be motivation and i definitely try really hard to let losing motivate me and it's probably gone too far where like losing over motivates me but i mean if you there's a lot of talk during the pandemic when the last dance came out about michael jordan and it was all about how he basically turned any scrap of anything he could into competitive fuel like if you just commented on his you know tie color he would be like i'm gonna show that guy and i'm gonna practice 10 hours and i'm gonna score 100 points tonight it's like any slight became fuel for him and maybe there's something that's like too much about that but i think there's an element of that that we could all learn from which is that if you feel like you get boosted out of a world title that should be what has you waking up early every morning to practice to try to play better not finding a way to like either it shouldn't make you leave first of all it shouldn't make you compete less and it shouldn't make you try to come up with reasons why you should have won or why everything needs to change so that you do win it should be, this is fuel for me to get better so that they can't take it away from me. Like, that's what I always think. I want to play so that they can't take this away from me. Because there is a level where if you play so much better than everyone else, they cannot, no matter what they do, take that away from you. And like, that should be your goal whenever you compete. Yeah. I think there's like a, I think we both agree. There's an underrated benefit of losing, which is it makes you an underdog. I know. For the next time. I just need to accept one really painful world where I just get fifth in every division and everyone's like, wow, he's so washed up. Like, I honestly need that career reset just so I can have a little more love for competition, but we'll save that for a, <laughs> for another time. Okay, so we have two I, more. Go ahead, go ahead. Yep. Oh, two more. Yeah, yeah. While we're queuing up the video, I wanted to do the losing run, the the losing streak with you, but like the pandemic stole it from us i know we'll we'll get there soon and we'll have a whole talk soon about our losing streak plans but yeah. don't worry world one day ryan and i are going to intentionally lose a lot of tournaments and just just reset but that's another conversation yeah. 
Okay, so <laughs> so we're moving to mixed pairs final. Now, this is one there was definitely some chatter in the community about. So we'll see how we feel about it. And this is one that's going to be hard for me to talk about because talking about Daniel's like talking about myself. Like he and I grew up as freestylers together. He's a groomsman at my wedding. He's one of my best friends. And I think we just like judge each other like we judge ourselves. So let's see. Let's see how this goes. So the the first one, third place team, Katie and Daniel, tell me when to start. All right. Ready? Three, two, one, go. I think I picked this song, Ryan. Because <laughs> we played to it in Virginia, right? Yeah. Maybe it was Daniel, though. That's an amazing start. Daniel has the best guidance in the world, right? Can we agree on that? I can agree with that. Yeah. I it's think, also left-handed, which is very unique. I know, but his right-handed one is also incredible, but his lefty, mm -hmm. yeah, his main one is unbelievable. Strong start, great song, crowd super fired up. Wipers. Hey, that's like our combo from a long time ago. Yeah. But we, we tried to pass it out. We didn't always succeed, though. Okay, Wipers again by Daniel... Nice bad attitude. It's like all of Daniel's moves are so intentional. Yes. And like clean. That was a smart. See, that's a good speed flow section. It was two throws that kind of reset, added a little texture. I wish it had him in and under the leg, but that's nitpicking. That guy, this is insane. I think one of the guidances, I think the first one was meant to be a sabbatical. So that's the first bad drop. So that was a throwaway. So throwaways are definitely bad. That's like even mm -hmm. worse than missing the first move of the co-op. And then that was a tough drop. So that was a, this is where things get a little wrong. But they bring it back. Daniel's smart about like you have to play, you have to like act a little on the emotions, right? You have to be smiling when things are going a little bit wrong. Also smart by Katie there. So Daniel tried to skid for her. She missed it. And then when he threw it again, it's always risky to go for the move that you just missed in Worlds. Like, I usually try to avoid it. But she did the smart thing, which is she went for a different combo. Yep. It also wasn't the diff of the move. Like, you're just trying to get to the diff. That's a great routine building advice, by the way, which is when you're having trouble with a co-op and it's the not diff part that's screwing it up. It's like, well, we need to cut this out. If it's hard for us to do the thing that's not even what this combo is about, we need to change it. Nice poses. Mm -hmm. Love the Venus flytrap, I think it might be called. I've tried that. It's really hard. I've, I've been thinking about like a video series where I take a move I don't know how to do and I show every single attempt until I learn it. And I was thinking about doing it with Venus Flytrap. Perfect leg roll. Look, you still get the diff for that full leg roll, yeah, right? Yeah, of Even course. Though I mean, the continuation. it was like a little off yes. and he had to do the the and maybe he gets an execution error. But the execution error is basically noise. It's meaningless in the routine. Mm -hmm. But the leg roll should get, it should be a 9 or a 10, probably. Yeah. Also, that double by Daniel is really nice. Daniel has some of the most beautiful doubles. And I wish he would do them more, like especially in competition. Like... I know it's a little bit in vogue and hip to be like, oh, spinning is overrated and we, we should, like, we don't need to spin. Fine, like, 
maybe it's overrated, but it's still like incredible and exciting. And it's like, if you're going to do a Guidus, it doesn't hurt it to add two spins to it. It's, you know, it's like, it's not like it's worse because of spinning, even if spinning is a little bit overrated sometimes. But like when Daniel does a double barrel guy, double barrel like that, it's like so incredible. Um, but anyways, yeah, I have watched this routine since Worlds happened. And I mean, it's phenomenal. And in the moment, it was like we said with Andres and Pablo, absolutely electric, like people screaming on their feet. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Okay. Should we watch the next one? Yeah, yeah. This one, weirdly, uh, this is so this is me in Zofia. And I'll just say Graf and I was like dreading watching because I just didn't feel like we played that well. Zofia and I came in with no expectations, which was very frustrating because I don't think people understood that. This is a longer conversation, but it's like very hard when not only everyone expects you to win everything, but they expect you to expect to win everything, right? So like the number yeah. of people who came up to me after I got first, first and second, and they were like, well, are you disappointed you didn't win all three? I was like, no, because it would never, like winning all threes happened like twice in 50 years. Like it's, it takes a great deal of luck and a great deal of planning. And that's not always what your expectation was. So for Zofia and I, Zofia, like she's a new player. She's been playing a couple of years. She started in the pandemic and this is like one of her first major tournaments. And I asked her to play with me because I saw her at Frisbeer and thought she played incredibly well for a new player. I didn't have a mixed partner because Juliana, who I won with in 2019, is on the Disc Golf Pro Tour. Shout out to her. And so, like, our goal was to make the finals. And then we made the finals. Like, we said it'd be cool to make the podium, but we weren't expecting. So, anyways, like, this one is not going to be that hard for me to watch because we had very low expectations and we were, like, happy to be there. And in the moment, I remember feeling like, ah, we didn't really play that well. But I've since watched this, and it's a little better than I remember. So that's my opening context. Okay. All right, here we go. Tell okay. me when. Ready? Three, two, one, go. Okay, since we're best friends, I'm going to criticize you more than, like, I would other people. Go for it. So, like, after we, like, came back from the tournament, we were talking, and I was like, you know, there are kind of like roles in a Frisbee routine. Like there's the carry and the support. Yes. And you're like, I was the support in this one, but you don't look like the support in the routine. As I'm watching it, I do, I do understand what you mean. <laughs> I do think also though, we lost our routine about halfway through. And so once we started improvising, I definitely carried a bigger role than I meant to. You did end up using the best song. Yeah, we had debated whether this was a good song, you and I. So, so far, it's pretty good. I mean, I dropped two guidances. That's pretty bad. Like, under the old system, we'd already be in last place. But the new system kind of helps us. That worked pretty well. Yeah, it was very tight. You telegraphed what was going to happen, which I think is so important for the audience. I said that one lefty, which I almost never do. That's my, <laughs> uh, I don't know what the phrase is. That's my gauntlet thrown with Joey because he was criticizing me for setting clock with my right hand all the time. Just funny because I originally always set lefty, but I don't like how it looks. So I almost always set it righty. So the fact that I went for that double curl that I missed told you that I didn't think we were doing well. 
Like if I thought I don't think we were, your job was to compensate. Yeah, if I thought we were doing well, I would have gone for a single. Because that's not my usual spin to do the double crow with because it's UD clock with my left hand. And normally I don't care that much about what spin it is for a set but or catch. But because it's the UD crow set, it's I care a little more. Also, <laughs> that one is also I thought we were losing... She said it, and I wasn't planning on going for a hammer there, and it wasn't a very good set, but I was like, oh, we kind of need to do it. There's her double-handed there, counter. Look at that. That was cleaned it up. Yeah, I wish she'd gotten her India. She was so excited about that one. Now we're just making it up. A rare There's your six guidance. That's their best guidance in competition. That's a. I, we'll have to talk about this at some point. I do not know how to guide us. I'm open about this. I almost never attempt guidances, especially in competition. You can go look at the footage. It's extremely rare. Me doing a guidance there is super unusual. But it's growth mindset. You've been working on that for a long time. For five There's years. The... All right, there was a triple barrel guidance. I definitely wasn't planning on doing that. <laughs> Watching from the sidelines, I thought you were going to like triple out at after a certain point. What do you mean triple out? Like when you get to the point where you don't think you could win, you would only triple from that point on. Well, see that I think that's why when we had talked, I had said like I was thinking of myself more as a support role. Like if if the goal had been for us to win this tournament at any cost, I would have gone for seven or eight doubles, right? But I'd only had two mm -hmm. planned. And the fact that I did, a, I think I did like three or four here. I don't remember. I wasn't paying that much attention was because we lost our routine a little bit. So I was improvising. And I do think for newer players, including Zofia, like that improvising in a routine element is a lot harder to do when you don't have experience. So I did not want to burden her with a lot of decision making. And so I was going for doubles. But again, like that wasn't our goal. So I wasn't planning on doing like a ton of crazy dev and I planned for a lot more like high risk stuff that was in her court to do. Um, some of which we did and some of which we missed there. But I also sad, we had this really cool double, like this cool move where I do like a Fleming guidance under both of our legs, but we ran out of time and I didn't want to get the penalty, which I probably should have just taken it. But I like, I have trouble judging this. Like normally I feel like, it's easy for me to be like, wow, we were really bad. I get it. And I definitely thought we got fourth or fifth when in real life after this routine. I'm sure I said that to you. I definitely said that to other people. And I was very surprised we got second. But watching it, like, it makes me feel a lot better than I thought I would. Like, it's not nearly as bad as I thought it would be. And, like, I'll be happy to watch this again and, like, enjoy that I have this good memory with Sophia. Whose name I still probably butcher, by the way. Sorry, Zofia. I do my best. <laughs> yep. I think it's also important to po point out that execution is such a smaller portion of your score now. Yeah, and I did like, know that. Like, we talked... And I had told anyone who had listened to me about that, so that shouldn't have been a surprise to people. But... And this is something that I think will bring up... I'll certainly bring up to the committee, the judging, the judging committee, that, like, execution maybe got undervalued because... You know, as Claudio Chino once said, like, isn't catching important? And I think he's right. But I told anyone who listened at Worlds, like, look at the scores from all these rounds. Execution is completely meaningless. So, like, the spread between two teams is at most six points. But the 
in execution, but the teams are winning by 50 points. So like, what is six points in the scheme of things? And that's the difference between like 20 drops and two. So execution wasn't that important. And I, the part that I love about that is as a competitor under the old system, you drop it once in the first 30 seconds and you're like, well, like might as well just walk off the field now that we've, we've lost. But I definitely in my head was like, okay, double down, double down, double down. And the best version of that, it didn't work out, but I loved watching it. It was Edo and Marco in pairs. They probably went for eight triples. I mean, it was insane. I think like they knew things had gone wrong in the first minute. And so they did what you should do under the system, which is you should keep doubling down, going for broke and going crazy. And I like that there's this emergency exit option to try to like salvage your routine. Pull the goalie. Pull the goalie. Yes. We have to have a whole episode on pulling the goalie. So this is the pull the goalie moment. So I felt, I remember feeling in this routine, even though it wasn't going well, I was trying to go bigger and, you know, on balance, it was fine. Now, do I think we should have beat Katie and Daniel? Probably not. But again, it's hard for me to judge because this gives me more good feelings than I would have expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what's exciting is this year is the year everyone learned how the new system works. And then next year in Colombia is when everyone takes advantage of it. I mean, well, we talk about every, it was an interesting tournament because there was a lot of 2010 era players that were kind of coming back, like the Claudio Chinia, Matteo Godoni type people. And not speaking about them specifically, but players like that who haven't played in five years were coming out and they're doing these routines. And I would just look at you and I'd be like, oh man, this is an old system routine where it's like, <laughs> you're filling time. You're trying not to drop it. It's like, how long can this flat simple under the leg delay based combo go can we kill 30 seconds like this like like i remember again i'm not i don't remember these routines specifically but i remember when i explained at the judging training how the phrases worked and how you needed 12 or whatever um valerio and mateo came up to me they were like we only have 11 phrases and i was i was making fun of them. i was like how is that even possible like yeah do you have a 45 second combo in there? And, and they laughed and were really good natured about it. And I know they, they added some extra phrases in the routine and they were fine, but it's just sort of funny seeing that like generational divide between, you know, players into the old system. And, and then, you know, half the players at this tournament started after me and you for sure. And I think for most of them, this is just the system and it makes sense to them. Okay. Last mixed. Right. Last mixed. All right. Tell me when you're ready. I'm ready. All right. Ready? Three, two, one, go. Okay. Edo is probably my favorite player in the world right now. I am very excited to see him win this. Now, in the spirit of being honest, he has a reputation for being one of the best players in the world, but struggling to perform in the finals. And I don't know if I totally agree with this theory because I see him in the finals and he's the calmest person I've ever seen in my life. He's just could not be more chill and good natured about it. So it might just be coincidence that he hasn't done as well as you would expect. And even at this Worlds, yes, he won the mixed pairs title and he plays great in this round. But I don't think this is, I don't think this Worlds he played as well as you would expect him to based on his skill, right? Yeah. But I mean, you've been telling me he's the best player in the world for a long time. And 
my response is always, I need to see it in competition. But this, this routine like convinced me. Yeah. He's just like the turning point. He's so clean. He's so good. And yeah, he looks very calm. Now there's, there's one, (laughs) there's one factor in this routine that I think changed some people's perception of it. And this could be a conspiracy theory. So someone call me out on it. I think their music was a lot quieter than everybody else's and it affected the emotional tenor a little bit because I remember watching it and thinking like, this is incredible and I don't know why people aren't getting as excited as they got for some of the other routines. But also like when I'm watching now, like I'm seeing the crowd get really fired up about super hard stuff. So it might've just been something I felt in the moment that wasn't accurate. Yeah. Successful speed flow. And they got off of several, several there. Triple barrel. I mean, that should be a nine or a 10, right? I mean, what else? Yeah. Was there anything harder than that in mixed pairs? I don't think, well, I did a triple barrel guidance, but whatever. <laughs> Besides that, <laughs> that has to be the hardest move that happened, you know? That's cool. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that was it's beautiful. Like continuation. Look, I mean, I know there was a little bit of controversy about it, but in the moment, I told them, like, I think it's clear that you guys won. And even watching now, like, like that's a little bit of a mistake, but it... Mm-hmm. It felt uncontroversial to me, but I could be wrong. I think the video made it more clear to me. Yeah. It kind of goes to the thing about phrases too, because I think if you look at their score sheet, they have like twice as many phrases as everybody else. They're not twice, but they have like way more phrases than everyone else. So that helps you in so many ways. It helps you with your cat's percentage and execution, but that's the smallest thing that it helps with. The biggest thing it helps with is you have way more phrases to accrue difficulty. So yes, mm-hmm. only the 12 phrases count. But again, it's like you you can't have, if, if only 12 phrases count, you can't hope that you have all 12 of your phrases work. You need to have 20 phrases and hope 12 of them work. So they had like whatever, 20, 25 phrases and it was enough to give them way more diff. And look, they're getting a standing ovation. Like I think, I think they won. Like I think they won. Yeah, I think they won. And I mean, gotta say, like Benny crushed. Like, look at that Fleming Guidus. I mean, wow. Like, I think some of what this is kind of weird because you're comparing like two kind of like lesser known competitive players, or three even. Because like, if you look at the podium, like the three women on the podium were and whatever. I'm I'm just, I'm saying women. I don't know how these people identify, but I, like. In the mixed pairs context, we had Zofia, Benny, and Katie. And and this is actually cool. Those are all brand new players, right? Like, Benny's been playing longer, right? She's been playing since 2015, I think. But on and off and not competitively until recently. And then Zofia and Katie both started in the pandemic. So first of all, very cool that we have three relatively new women players rounding out the podium in mixed. But with that said, like, here to me, Benny definitely looks like the most polished player, which is probably because she's been playing twice as long as everybody else. And she carries a little bit more of the diff load. Now, I mean, Katie does like that crazy leg. Katie does carry a lot of diff, but it felt like, I don't know. It just, it feels a little more balanced to me between Edo and Benny in terms of like who's carrying the diff. A big part of it is Benny's doing traditional diff. Like, I think it's underrated how your diff 
or like what kind of diff you're doing, like the type of diff matters because people are looking at it and converting into a number. Yeah. And that process is complicated. And so if you're doing something they've done before and the judges have seen before, it's like, it's, it's much simpler. Yeah. I mean, I have mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, I agree. On the other hand, I think sometimes new and we i think you and i disagree about this sometimes like new or unique or moves that not a lot of people do are overvalued in the sense that people are like oh, i've never seen that before i'm gonna give it a nine or a ten and then when i go home and learn it i'm like oh actually this move isn't that hard <laughs> it's just okay. no one had ever seen it when before. i look at the score sheet i've never even seen a nine or a ten so. well that's because that's the other thing i was about to say so it's like i know that i gave out a lot of nine and tens and i gave them out for a lot of like weird stuff that i've never seen before but at the same, and my experience as a judge is that I see a lot more nines and tens for kind of new, unique moves than I do for like crazy traditional moves. And sometimes I'm just like, okay, like I know we've all seen a Edo hit a triple barrel before, but objectively that took years and years and years of training to do and is super risky. Like it has all the hallmarks, all the hallmarks of any difficult move. It's like it took eight years to be able to do that it's extremely high risk. It's putting the disc high in the air. It's extremely, it's like, what What else do you want from this move? Why shouldn't it be a nine or a 10? Versus like, okay, here's a funky kick that is funky and cool and very difficult and high risk. But like, guess what? I can learn that in my garage in the next 20 minutes. And maybe I'm not gonna be ready to do another world championship, but like, and I don't, I wanna be careful. I'm fine with giving nines and tens to the really crazy moves, but I think sometimes people get a little bit too cute about, well, like we've all seen a triple before. We've all seen like a Digitronic before. It's like, yes, but like there's a reason it's rare and that only the best players in the world can do it. Now, there's one other point I want to make about this that kind of relates a little bit to the difference between Biddy and Edo and everybody else, which is traditional diff favors or has the advantage of having multiple hard moves in the same combo whereas a lot of like new and funky moves that's it it's like i'm gonna do this new funky kick and then you're gonna catch it under the leg because dear god please catch this like it's gonna be not in the same place every time it's gonna be very inconsistent we're just trying to get on the board with it whereas like if you're gonna do a triple you can do a bunch of other really cool stuff first that's really hard rack up some difficulty and finish with a triple do you know what i mean mm-hmm I think maybe that's like a weakness in freestyle now, but I wonder if someone will like innovate a way to convert like the weird wacky move. Then there's like this mystery move that we don't have yet. And then you have a clean triple set. But I think one of the reasons I think weird wacky move can be a little overvalued is, and I'm going to flip it, which is that combinations are really undervalued in the sense that most of the time the judges give their score based on the hardest part of a combo. So, and usually that's the catch. So the catch has two benefits. Not only is it often the hardest part of the combo, or at least the most obvious hard part of a combo, it's the last thing the judges see. So there's a lot of recency bias, but sometimes that's really frustrating because you can string five really hard combos. Sorry, you can string five really hard moves together and end with a triple and you get a nine, or you can just do the triple and get a nine. You know, so like that's a big imbalance problem and that hurts quote unquote traditional difficult freestyle, but not like new 
unique freestyle. I see what you mean. Right? Because new unique freestyle, the only thing that is happening is the crazy move. So I'll be unfair and I'll pick examples. Like, I think the leg roll does deserve a nine or 10. Don't get me wrong. But the problem with the leg roll is you're going to leg roll it and then the other person is just going to catch it like at all costs, which is what happened. Like there was an incredible full body leg roll without question. Katie Gim is the best leg roller probably in the history of the sport. And there's so few people who have even tried it. But like all Daniel did with it was uh, like a, a layout, the catch, totally valid, totally cool. Should get a nine or 10 for that. Um, but like for someone else to do, get a nine or a 10 using traditional freestyle, you'd have to string together. First of all, stringing together a tons of hard moves wouldn't even help you because only the one move is going to give you credit. <laughs> so you might as well not do that. And there's like basically nothing you can do to match it. And I don't know if that's, I don't know if this is even a problem. I'm just kind of like pointing it out. It's like, maybe I find it like, it's kind of like a fair balance. It's like, if you do the new unique move, you're going to get a lot of points for it. And you don't have to worry about anything else. If you do traditional freestyle, it's traditional. So your punishment for doing something that's more traditional is that like you need a lot more to get the same difficulty. Okay. But it's your floor. Maybe your floor is higher when you're that's traditional true. dip. That's absolutely true. And I mean, I like, I'm a little biased here because I favor traditional freestyle that like I'll be open about that and we should have a whole conversation about that. But I want to be really clear about something, which I will say a million times on this podcast and it applies to everybody. And I, I try to be like aware of it, which is that like, I don't like traditional freestyle because I'm a traditional freestyler. I am a traditional freestyler because I like traditional freestyle. So this is like a line from a, a movie, the name of which I can't remember, but like, and it sounds like complicated mythical nonsense, but it, it makes a lot of sense. It means that I'm not telling you that this is the best style because it's mine and I like myself and I am promoting what I do. I'm saying that I built my game around the things that I like. And I really like just old school, traditional, consecutive freestyle. And I love like cool, unique moves. I try to learn like basically every year after Worlds, every move I saw that I liked, I try to learn it. And a lot of the like new unique moves I do learn, even though I don't do them a lot or I don't, I don't get them to the point of like competitive consistency. Like I like traditional freestyle and like I'm, tr I, I want to be open about that because I think a lot of people do, but we're kind of like a silent majority. And sometimes it's, it's easy to be like, oh, like they're soulless people who don't innovate, which I don't think is true. I think there's still a ton of innovation in quote unquote traditional freestyle. Um, but you know, I just want to shed some love on them. Can I think like I'm bringing it up now because I think Edo and Benny are like a very traditional freestyle team, and I love that, and I don't want to take take away from them because they're quote unquote traditional. Okay, I have a question. Do you think this is true? Like in the future, moves that are outside of traditional freestyle can become traditional. Like, can the leg roll will that be considered traditional freestyle? And after it's been done for 10 years. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing too. Like, I think so to a degree, but here's the catch to it, which is that I think if I had to make like a definition of traditional freestyle or, or how to separate, I mean, look, it's a subjective line. People are going to draw it differently. Some people are listening to this saying like, what are you talking about? Like, I can't even picture in my head what is traditional and in what is not. But here's what I think about like traditional freestyle. Every move is a conjunction, meaning it can be an and, but, or it can connect things. 
So like every traditional freestyle move, I can put it at the beginning of my combo, the middle of my combo, the end of my combo. They are moves that lend themselves to consecutivity and stringing things together. Whereas a lot of what I think of as untraditional freestyle, they are stopping points. It's like, I can do this and I can't do anything else after it. Like I, I have to build everything around this one move because it's really hard and has a weird angle and it's not consistent. And so okay. when you ask me about the leg roll, it's a tricky one because, and this should be a whole nother podcast about like, what are the limits of freestyle and how close are we to them? I have no idea. I have a lot of thoughts on it, but I have no idea. But let's assume like there's a world where freestylers are way, way better than we are now. Could we get to the point where like a leg roll is just like a front roll and you can just be like, well, I'm going to roll, roll, back roll, leg roll, roll, guide us. Like in that sense, I think a leg roll or like some of the like wilder upside down kicks, like those could be traditional freestyle. But a lot of like these really unique moves, they just have too much variance to be connecting. It's like, that's it. I just have to do this and that's that. But the leg roll is a tricky example. Like, I don't know why we're like, we're, I feel like we're picking on it for, for some reason, but like leg roll actually really of all the moves I'm thinking of in my head is the most conducive to being a traditional freestyle move at some point. So you think at some point it's going to be undervalued. Yeah. And, <laughs> but right now it's properly valued. And maybe it's just a thing that like everything looks untraditional until we find a way to incorporate it. So it's not that it like suddenly everyone can do it. So now it's traditional. It's more like it exists in another language right now and we can't use it in our language yet. But once we get better at it, we can start to do it. So like, let me pick on another like unconventional move so that it doesn't just seem like we're bashing the leg roll, which obviously like hating him is the only one can do, can like really consistently do. So I don't want to seem like we're trashing her because like anyone who comes up with these moves should get all the respect in the world because it's so hard. But like, uh, the Belgian style of play, like they had some really wacky moves that I've never seen before. And like one of the moves is like a one hand, one handed handstand with like an invert delay, which is like, even when you say it out loud, you're like that is incredible. I can't even imagine doing that. And most moves I see, I'm like, oh, I can do that, including the leg roll. This move I see, I'm like, I will never do that. I'm never going to practice that. I'm not going to figure that out. That's impossible. But like that move at this point, and it's hard for me to imagine a future, it doesn't, there's no good way to get into it and there's no good way to get out of it. It just lives in its own world. You have to like force it into the sentence of your combo and force your way out of it. And it's just like, well, that move is crazy. I don't remember anything else you did. Everything else was irrelevant. That move is all that mattered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. Does that like kind of work as a working definition? Cause it's, cause again, I think it's not that untraditional moves become traditional. I think untraditional moves we work on them until they can be incorporated into our language. Hmm. Yeah, I think they're more like one-off moves. So there, maybe there's like a Venn diagram and there's some overlap, but it just happens that like one-off moves are like highly correlated with non-traditional. Yeah. And, okay. Here's style. another bad example. Like if you imagine a video game and you have all these moves and they have different levels and you keep leveling them up, you're like, I go level one, then two, then three, then four. Traditional moves are like those. It's like, oh, you're learning the yogi. Now that you know the yogi, you can make that a Fleming guy to shoot. Like once you have that, you can make it a flawed shoot. It's like you can take that concept and you can apply it a hundred different ways as you get better. That is a really useful, high utility move that's part of our language. And then a one-off move is like a side special effect where there's no levels. It's like this is a 
one time buff. It doesn't lead to anything else. There's no, like, it's not like you're going to keep upgrading it. It's a one-time thing. It doesn't go anywhere. And that's not a bad thing. It's just that, like, it's limiting. And, and another way, like, if I was teaching someone, I'd be like, don't learn that move yet. Like, learn these high utility moves that you're going to use all the time and wait on that. I mean, I, my philosophy is learn whatever you want to learn. It's like, don't get me wrong. But I just mean, like, if I had to build the perfect freestyler, I would be like, okay, like, wait on the one-off moves because they're not going to help you learn other things. Like work on the things that are going to be like part of the common language first. I like the distinction between utility and one-off moves. But I think like traditional like is like a different filter or it's like independent of those. I can see that. I mean, I, I guess I'm like viewing traditional through, like to me, traditional and high utility are highly related, highly correlated, whatever the right words are. But this is all on the spot. I have to like think more about it. And I, I'm trying to be careful because I'm sounding way more negative about non-traditional freestyle than I mean to be. But I think it's because we've like gone too far in the other direction. I think it's gotten too popular to be like, oh, like traditional freestyle, blah, blah, blah. And I, I want to like revitalize it. It's like, no, like to me, if I look at the list, Skippy's list of best players in the world of all time, they're all traditional freestylers. And I think that's not a coincidence. And I want to like just say like that's that's cool like people do this because they like it and there's something really amazing about it um, and they deserve credit too that's all I'm saying okay all right should we move on to co-op yeah Ryan you were so worried I was going to be too sterile and like not willing to express my opinions but uh, here I am just torching my reputation <laughs> It's like when you set up the jam or the camera in the jam, like for the first 30 minutes, everyone's like, can't catch. And then they just forget the camera's there. Yeah. Well, we'll see how I feel when all the hate mail comes in. <laughs> okay. I'll just, it'll be like in 2019, like you'll ask me and I'll be like, no, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Door's wide open. <laughs> all right. So last one after a lot of tangents, co-op. Yep. All right. Ready? Hang on. I'm ready now. All right. Three. Two, one, go. We're watching Chesco, Andrea, and Chega. I don't, I don't think I watched this one in real life. I only saw bits of it. Yeah, because we had to, we're still warming up. We had to warm up while everyone played. This is a little bit old school routine style. Like it actually does suit the new system well, but it's, it's, I think this kind of multi-disc routine, and we're, we commit this a little bit too, so like I'm going to say it's about us too. It's a little too disjointed in the sense that it's hard to follow what's happening because there's basically two independent co-ops happening that aren't related. Mm -hmm. I wonder how many of these new players didn't know who Marco Prati was. Or like only vaguely knew about him. But like in my mind, Marco is one of the best players ever. He was such a great competitor. You always tell me the story about how you're the only one that drops in practice. Yeah, so Marco and I played in 2016. We built a routine in literally 20 minutes. And we practiced it for a few days. And I swear, Marco never dropped it when we practiced, ever. Like in a way that I've never experienced before in my life. That was great. I love that, that kickback. That kick tip backwards is shockingly hard to do. This is a really strong also start. selling it. Yeah. 
That was a bit of a flog. I like that. Oh, it didn't work. I like any time someone uses the other person's body as the restriction rather than their own. Yeah, I think we, you and me, don't do that enough. It's like, well, we have a serious problem, which is that you're very short. So that's <laughs> an example of what like... we talked about before that it's a definitely a disadvantage. Yep. Like, I don't want to sound insensitive about it, but like, there's a lot of times where we try something and the window is really small. And we're, it's not even but just that you're like short, but we're a mismatch. Like, window. we're different sizes. Yeah. Yep. What do you call that catch Chesco just went for? I don't have a name for it. I've heard it called what, the poop your... catch, but it sounds so derogatory. That sounds like made up on the spot to me. I've heard it. That's a single poop because there's also a double poop. <laughs> All right, so that's this section's where they kind of go wrong, I think. They start to lose the routine. But see, Marco is doing what he needed to do in Paris, which is he's just crushing doubles. Monster delay. Crazy. Yeah, they just had the drops. Yep. I mean, there's still time. Yeah. Chess, but, or Frati knows how to work the crowd. I love it. <laughs> they have like this train going of catches. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, that's cool. It's like kind of like a weave variation. Hitting the music too nicely. What did he do? Flawed there? Or was there something weird about that? It looked like Guidus to me, but it was sideways. Oof, not that one. Wow, lefty helicopter. I saw that right, didn't I? Yep. Yeah, it's clock. I think Chesco wanted to do the round the world kick there. I don't. I didn't see the routine in the semis, but it just looked like he was gearing up for that, prepping it. Yep. I like how they tried to time that. Yeah, it just was a little sloppy, that one. It definitely it had a lot of potential. Bad. Like, that looked better than what I remember in person. Yeah, I mean, definitely you could see that that's a routine that could easily win. They just definitely had a few drops. It's surprising. I, I wonder, well, another thing we should rank at some point is the top indoor finals divisions of worlds because i do think this is one of and i say this as someone who won two divisions one of the worst indoor worlds finals we've ever had because normally mm -hmm. when you go indoors you have a much higher catch percentage in your routines like we reg like in 2019 there was many routines with just a handful of drops and here most of the teams if not all the teams we've seen so far have had at least five drops each team. I mean, that's a ton of drops. Do you think that's influenced from the new judging system? I mean, I was kind of going to say, like you said that people are still incorporating or like coming to understand the new system. And I think that's accurate, but definitely this is way more drops than we normally see. And I think maybe people internalized it a little bit and I know I did. So it wouldn't surprise me that other players too realize, well, if I drop it, I should just, keep going for it 
I wonder if it's even like learning during the tournament because this is like the third day of competition. And it's like, sometimes I'll bail. I mean, in 2019, I would bail all the time. Yeah. But now I'm like, there is no reason to bail. True, which is one of the best things about the new system. I do think well, like another version of it too is that when one team does badly, the next team feels like they have a bigger margin of error and that cascades. So it's kind of like what I said when I went up in pairs where I thought like, oh, no one's played really that well. So the door's wide open. Now that hurt me in two ways. One, it like made me feel more pressure. But two, I can imagine for a lot of players and probably to myself to some degree, you think like, oh, well, like everyone else screwed up. So I don't really have to worry. I can go for more stuff. And if I mess up, it's fine. But then everyone does that and then everyone kind of doesn't play, play that well. So <laughs> there might be something like metal sharpens metal, like whenever or iron, whatever the phrase is, like when everyone's playing well, everyone plays well. But when everyone plays poorly, everyone plays poorly. Yep. It's like maybe someone needs to like bet the one dollar on the prices right and just does like the traditional catch everything routine. I do think there's like a strategy there's we should have a whole episode on strategies for mid-level players like what is your strategy to win because one strategy would be i'm gonna go out there i'm gonna hit all sixes i'm gonna keep it simple and i'm gonna have a near perfect execution score and i'm gonna be just waiting to take it if everyone screws up another strategy which is definitely my strategy when i was coming up was i'm gonna play far past the level of skill that i currently have and Nine times out of 10, it's not going to work. But one time out of 10, I'm going to win a tournament that I shouldn't have. And for me, I got really lucky and won a lot more than I should have. But like, again, I think that's generally luck. But it was definitely like when Jan and I played, it was intentionally our strategy. Like we are going to play above our skill level or we're going to attempt things that are above our skill level. And if we hit them, we'll outperform. Mm -hmm. All right, Edo, Paul, and Graf. Yep. Tell me when you're ready. You think by now I would learn to queue it up ahead of time, but I haven't. But you're usually talking, so you have an excuse. I know. I, I'll like say this I now, a... and we'll say this again. We know that I talk way too much. Like, Ryan and I know this. It's Ryan's very quiet. I'm very loud. We know. Guys, we get it. Like, <laughs> send us emails. We'll take them. All right, I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Three, two, one, go. Mine's loading. <laughs> Oh, no. Error occurred. We had a good run. We had a good run. All right, I refreshed <laughs> okay. it. Okay, refresh. Refresh. It's, <laughs> I got to reopen it again so it resets the time. This one really doesn't want to open for me. <laughs> this is like debugging. It's like it works on my machine. Okay, wait a minute. I'm going to use a different browser because you always tell me that that's my problem. I mean... <laughs> okay, it may or may not work in another browser. Fine. All right, I'm ready. Okay, three, two, one, go. Is that hard? You think that double throw, that distance? I don't know. I think I did double throws for a few worlds and they never felt that scary. But someone said that they crossed. I don't know about that. I'd have to watch that. The again. players crossed. Oh. Hmm. Yep. Mid-flight. I think this is a little overrated. The I'm holding two discs, but I'm not really doing anything with either one of them. 
That's a tough roll miss. See, this is also that kind of like old school double disc routine that I think is going to fade out a little bit where the judges can't really focus on one thing. Wow, triple barrel get us. That was a really nice one. This is good. I don't remember this. This is really strong. This would have been a little scarier to watch. Oh, I think he wanted to hit that straight off. Yep. Um, I say this like we did I, it in our routine. We didn't do it upside down, but like that's a scary kind of diff because you're not going to get enough credit for it. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, the judges are going to see you brushed it really hard to the other player. But that's like a eight, nine, ten level difficulty that you're probably mm -hmm. only going to get five, six, or seven for it. It's like the hitch turnover of turnovers. Exactly. That Paul just did. Like it looks like something a lot easier, so you don't get as much credit for it. And we're gonna have a whole episode on <laughs> against moves. I like that. That was nice. That was like Paul doing Murdy's move. Which by the way, that's a strategy I don't like. Like if someone has a signature move, they should do it, not you, because they're mm -hmm. usually better at it. Like if I'm playing with Paul, I'm not gonna do machine gun. I'm not gonna do machine gun, period. I'm sure it's about to come up and I'm gonna make fun of it. <laughs> but like Paul kind of did Graf's move there, which I think is interesting. The Matrix. Matrix. There was a couple Matrix. Yeah, there's two different kinds like of Matrix, time. though. That's what Joey calls the easier kind because he can see it the whole time. Like, none of the tips are behind his head. But any Matrix is basically impossible. So that gets a very high dip score in my book. Nice double barrel. His chicken wing is his lefty chicken wing has got to be the best in the world. Scarecrow brush. I think he meant that for Edo. Yep. Or maybe it was going to be a tip back, I guess. Yeah. To grab. Oh, I like that. The yogi mm -hmm. under the leg. It's like the blind side under the leg. Yep. Pretty. This is highly technical diff. Great. Oh, Edo. Was that his? his that might be the, I don't know. I wonder if that's his main hand. All right, Paul knows I make fun of him about this all the time. This is probably my least favorite move in freestyle, the machine gun. It was so good in 2019, but now it's like when a patch comes out in a video game, it's like nerfed. Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an old, old system move because it kills time and is neutral at diff. Wow, that was Finny Fleming Guidus. Perfect. See, this is old school routine stuff. Like this takes way too much time for the amount of diff you get for it. Yep. But it's a nice, it's a nice, this is a nice combo. I really like it. But then that catch, like, like you can't catch it on the leg in the world championship. And they have an old system problem too. This is another example where I'm being too harsh because these are like my best friends. Like Paul carried me on his back to world titles and Edo and Graf are my partners next year. So I'm being more mean. But they have a lot of, they have a problem that I saw from a lot of teams that were kind of close but didn't make it, which is basically lack of consecutivity within co-ops. So it's like, I do a couple of moves, I brush it to you, and you're going to do a the delay for a second before you restart the co-op. And that really kills 
momentum and it kills the co-ops for me and it takes a lot more time so you got to do it and a lot of times it's because you make a mistake so definitely like i feel like if i do that it's because something went wrong and i didn't mean to take it in as of the delay but at the worlds you really can't build the co-op or you really shouldn't be building a co-op that requires a person to take it as a the delay right yep like you should pl- like you can plan ahead of time so you can plan like a better yeah and i brought it up there because it looked like at the end there was one or two times where they planned the, the delay i don't think it was a mistake mm. i could be wrong but that's the kind of thing that i really would try to avoid when i build the routine um but that was actually also better better than i remember there was some like that might be another one of like underperforming relative to their skill because you have edo paul and graf easily top players in the world um but still that was a good routine Mm-hmm. All right, I'm opening up the last one. This is me, you, and Pavel. Let's go. Fine. This is like the one truly, this is not controversial, right? Like, we're fine. We're not going to yeah. rock any boats. I have yeah. to say, I did watch this, and this was not as good as I remember. So it cuts both ways. You think so? Okay. Um, okay, tell me when. Three, two, one, go. Oh, boy. I want to know how many times I caused. Oh, wait, it's now going. I got to switch browsers again. Okay, let me reopen the. We're not going to say which browser I'm using. So when, <laughs> well, everyone... when Fortune when Fortune 100 po- companies start uh, sponsoring our Sponsor. podcast, you know, <laughs> we don't we don't have a bad start because that's obviously going to happen. Okay. okay, tell me when. All right. Three, two, one, go. Okay, I want to know how many times I caused you to drop in this routine. One day, history will vindicate some of my drops. Yep, I think it's two. No offense, like pairs, a lot of the drops were not my fault. (laughs) That got a much bigger roar in the semis. They, well, it's the second time we're seeing it, so it's it's a one-off move. That is a hard move, though. Uh, yeah, I'm glad that worked out. That was the most important thing to me, was to get that right, the double turnover. Here, I drop a double barrel guidance. This is shameful. I didn't realize you dropped it until I watched the video. I bailed on mine. This is probably why it feels worse for me watching the video, because you guys actually crushed the routine, and I was a little bit of the weak link. This we nailed, though. I felt good about this. Yep. Will history know that I did all these things with my non-dominant spin? <laughs> I should have guided us that, but I don't know how to guide us. That's a veteran fix by Pavel. We ran out of room there with the audience. I saved that. Yep. That was one of my Matt Gothier moments. It wasn't like pretty, but I was just like, okay, I can't even believe I got that. This is our old is pairs. Yep. I can't believe Pablo can roll like that. Here's where the new system, I knew I could go for this, even though I didn't need to. 
That was like the one of the best timings. I know that's when I felt time. like okay, we've won no matter what. This was a good adjustment we made because we were indoors. We had to change something that wasn't going to work without wind. This was rough though because I had to like kill a little bit of time, <laughs> but it kind of worked. This was the hardest part of the routine for me is this catch. That was so good though. Like there, you, there was no room. <laughs> yep. That I was thought you were going to set it half as far. Okay, was that my fault? Yeah, like a hundred times a hundred, your fault. No offense. Okay. You're also going to really burn me on a scarecrow. And it's annoying because it looks yeah. like it's my fault, but it's a hundred percent your fault. No offense. <laughs> that was way worse than I thought it was. I had really bad form. That was what I said earlier, where like sometimes my form degrades in competition. But you remembered the next co-op, so that was the important part. Did this work? I don't. It looks like it is. I don't remember this. The problem was the skirt. Yeah, my sets oh, were man. low. Oh man, you set it to the wrong hand, and too low. But I. This is a new system. I was like, whatever. I'm gonna just keep going with it. We got the harder one. This is the part where I know the routine's over for me. I just get to like watch you guys play. I was worried there that Pavel thought the routine was over. Did you have that fear? <laughs> no. I think I screamed I like, at him. Go. He looked like we were done. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is the best one, best looking one of any yeah, of the Yeah, on the music too. That was nice. I like that. I didn't trust you, Ryan. This I'm sorry. Good. You were supposed to catch this last one. And you were taking I too long. <laughs> Whoa, I have to wait for Pavel. I didn't even go for the double barrel guidance. All right. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> Everyone was impressed that Pavel could pick us both up in that moment. I heard that too. I didn't even notice it. Look, I didn't even remember because <laughs> people kept saying that to me and I was like, did he pick us up? But yes, he did. I mean... Pavel's freaky strong. I mean, he's got one of the best throws. Uh, I'm also glad Pavel got redemption because there was a funny thing that happened, which is when we played the semis, we totally got lost. We forgot our routine. I mean, backstory, like a lot of people this year, but definitely our teams, like there wasn't any time to practice. Like it just wasn't a lot of time to meet. And we had built this routine in 2019 and we didn't get to do it because of the pandemic. And then Pavel's like a globetrotter, so we never really had a chance to practice. And even when we were together, we just jammed on the beach the whole time. So we were a little <laughs> shaky on the memory. And in the semifinals, we totally forgot the routine pretty early on, and we kind of like wiggled our way through it. And at the end of the routine, a lot of people came up to me. I'm sure you probably they were nice enough not to go up to Pavel, and they were like, "That was a great routine, but like Pavel didn't do anything." And it's I was like, well, it's because we kind of skipped all of his sections because we <laughs> forgot the routine. And you and I, just the way it turned out, like we literally skipped all the parts where Pavel was supposed to show off his incredible game. So I was glad that in the finals, not only did we get all the Pavel sections, I think he played the best. Like, I mean, he hit all of his doubles and really shredded. And I was glad he got that uh, redemption that he probably didn't know he was getting because I'm sure no one told him. <laughs> but I was like, wow, I mean... And it didn't help that he uh, came to the tournament late and he didn't compete in any other division. So, like, no one had seen him. He goes up to play with us and basically doesn't touch the disc because we are evil. And 
<laughs> but then in the finals, he crushed. Yep. All right. Any other closing thoughts? I think we killed it. We have two hour, 30 minute opening podcast. Yep. If length was the goal, we nailed it. Yep. I think we exceeded expectations. Okay. How, you, you, how, just how annoyed, how mad are people right now? Like how many people, how many bridges did I just burn? I think you are going to end up okay. I usually take all the heat for us, but how did we do? Are we, how's our Q rating right now? I think it's okay. I don't know. I don't have a good sense because I know how you talk and it's just, that's like, it's normal for me. But there's people who haven't heard you like in the party around the table talking a lot that might be surprised. We'll see. Maybe my losing streak is I just make everyone mad and then they just, I lose everything. But let me make clear, every single player who makes the podium of the world championship is an amazing freestyler and deserves all the credit in the world. But like literally the point of the world championships is to nitpick between the best players in the world. So we have to make judgment calls about who is performing better than others. And that's part of the business. I mean, we'll probably take flack for this, but every time you sit down and judge, you're asked to do exactly what we're doing now. We're just being open about it. So hopefully people understand that and give us some credit for it, but we'll see. We'll see how people feel. Yep. Okay then. So till next time. Yep. You can find us whatever on Apple podcasts and everywhere else you download your podcasts. All right. Cue outro music.